Zachary Lamb. How was the fiendish Simon Phoenix apprehended back in the 20th? In the end, it took just one man. One cop. John Spartan. John Spartan? That's right. They called him the Demolition Man. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Today, as part of our Bargain Bin series, we're going to be discussing Demolition Man. Starring Sylvester Stallone. Hey, you got something to say, scumbag? Wesley Snipes. I'm a blast from the past. <laughs> Sandra Bullock. Simon Phoenix knows he has some competition. He's finally matched his meat. You really licked his ass. Dennis Leary and Nigel Hawthorne. Our noble facility has been desecrated by hooligans. Someone will pay dearly for this. Directed by Marco Brambier. <sighs> what I wouldn't do for some action. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. What's your boggle? It's Gally in Glasgow. Let's blow this guy. It's everyone in London. Phoenix! It's Matt in South Korea. <laughs> Let's finish with all the rip and inkle and get moving. It's Patrick in London. Sounded <laughs> <laughs> very genuine. Oh. One thing I'm always kind of amazed by is every time you say hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast, I feel like it, you've just got that on record and just play it and it's the same thing we hear every time. <laughs> <laughs> you sound identical every time you do it. This is fucking pro- it's professional, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Although, One you know, of us has to be. Uh, yeah, thanks, Dorothy, for <laughs> pulling back the curtain here on, on Oz. You know, I practice all week for that. Ugh, anyway. Mammy Mamo. <laughs> Mammy Mamo. I'm singing off key. Uh, we thought we'd lighten things up because it was getting a bit heavy. So we've decided to pick uh, Demolition Man. I, it was a bit of a consensus pick, wasn't it? Although, Matt, you had the final kind of say on it. Yeah, it was a short list again, and we narrowed it down. Um I think this is one we're all quite familiar with. We probably didn't need to research it too much, but um, yeah, we went with Demolition Man. Yeah, and I think uh, we're also all hankering to kind of get to 2032 so we can get rid of 2020 ASAP. <laughs> so it made it made complete sense that we would do Demolition Man. But I'll uh, I'll go around the room. Uh, so I'll start with uh, I'll start with our South Korean uh, correspondents on the ground. <laughs> What, what, first time you saw Demolition Man? When did you see it? Pre-DVD years, but I think DVDs were around in about 97. Richmond School era for me was, uh, when I was about 12 or 13. I think I'll have been 11 when it was released in cinemas, so I was too young to see it. Uh, but I think I picked up the VHS, uh, quite quickly after it came out. I don't think we even rented it. I think I just bought it. And, uh, my good friend Rob Hawthorne, who is no relation to Nigel Hawthorne, uh, I, I went to school with him and, uh, I think he's listening. Uh, he's a keen listener. He messages me about the show sometimes. So mellow greetings to Rob, if you're listening. Uh, we used to spend our secondary school lessons writing film quotes to each other and sliding them under the door, uh, to like the adjoining classrooms that we had. And I would start a quote and he would finish it and he would send one to me and I would finish it. And, uh, at lunchtimes we would walk to a bakery or Barry's Ices, which was an ice cream van. Uh, that parked outside school and we would always jokingly refer to Barry's hamburgers as rat burgers. <laughs> so, uh, 
most days I get a hot dog or a wrap burger and a carton of Astros and a Coke and then, you know, go and play football. But we would talk about these wrap burgers. Uh, and when we discussed the, the bargain bin, like before choosing this one, you used the word uh, ubiquitous. And that's exactly right for this film. Everyone at school, all the lads knew it. Uh, it would circulate on this VHS and I actually owned it. So I remember people asking to borrow it, borrow it. And uh, I don't think it's in the same league as the Under Siege and Lawnmower Man sequels. I want to keep my sandwiches in my lunchbox a little bit, but I don't think it's as bargain bin as some of those choices that, that we've had on the show. But um, yeah, I watched Demolition Man too many times when I should have been revising for exams and, and not replaying a gurning man <laughs> diving sideways <laughs> in slow motion over and over again. Um, how about you, Patrick? What was your first experience with Demolition Man? I, I think quite hard about this. Um, cause I don't, I don't remember fully and I don't think I've seen this film many times, if not like this week, rewatching it for, for our chat today may even be the second time I've seen it. Um, mm. but I remember, I kind of remember this being the cool film that you had to have seen when I was at school. Uh, I was in primary school and I think it was, I definitely watched it on TV because I seem to remember um it's a really weird time in my life i remember loads of sylvester stallone films at the time and getting into him a little bit when i was in school and another patrick who was in my class it was three patricks in my class which caused all sorts of confusion um he was a big fan of the sylvester stallone films and i remember adverts being in cliffhanger this and i can't i can't remember the other one. it might have even been judge shred um and if you hadn't seen Demolition Man, you weren't cool because it was a, it was considered quite a cool film <laughs> at my school. Um, cause you know, action, nineties action film. Uh, I think maybe I even saw it when Speed was coming out in the cinema and watching TV or something like that. But, um, I don't, I didn't really have any memories about the film really apart from, uh, Wesley Snipes and his hair. Uh, I seem to remember him being, like something that I quite enjoyed watching um, at the time and then rewatched it this week, which was cool. Um, how about you? I don't know. Oh, you picked it, Matt. How about you, Gally? What, what's your memory of it? Uh, so this one is, uh, is another kind of prominent sky cinema watch for me. I did like you, Matt. I got this one on VHS, but the, the reason why I was so keen on demolition man in my youth was it was all the bullock. Uh, so as soon as Speed came out, I pretty much had uh, developed somewhat of a, a strong fascination and love for Sandra Bullock, not knowing her personally, but uh, just kind of fell in love with her. I had a tin pencil case that I uh, had actually cut out magazine pictures of her. It's almost a little bit, uh, <laughs> a little bit creepy, isn't it? And I used to I pop them in. And my oh, dad... Yeah, you do these kind of things, don't you? And it's a way of showing affection. Uh, my dad uh, is uh, is full Greek, and he used to think it was hilarious because he would be like, Sandra Bullock? And, like, <laughs> and then we'd laugh at his own joke. I was like, yeah, her name is Bullock, Dad, not Bollock. Um, but yeah, that was, that was very much my demolition, man. I would watch it for her and her alone. Stallone, and we'll get into it when we talk about where he's at in his career, but I've always quite liked him in dramatic roles. You know my love of Rocky. Um, as an action star, I've always found him to be a bit, a bit powder puff, to be honest. I've never really bought into him as a as an action star, but I think that might also be because the Rambo series was never a series that I particularly kind of 
had strong feelings about. They were, you know, fine, watchable, but I never really attached myself to them. So yeah, that that was it for me. It was really Sandra Bullock bringing uh, bringing me to the yard on this one. Um, what about you, Devlin? This one was, I, I don't remember the first time I watched it, but much like you guys, it just, it, well, probably more like, like Matt and, uh, and Gally's experiences. It was, yeah, it was just a, a completely ubiquitous film. To, to quote pop star, it was everywhere, like oxygen or gravity or clinical depression. It was just, <laughs> <laughs> it was, the, it was, it was a completely ubiquitous film, which is why I guess it comes under the category that we are, uh, approximately calling it as a as a bargain bin isn't it you know when we say a film is a bargain bin it doesn't necessarily mean it's a piece of shit it does just mean that it was <laughs> it was a film that uh that just sort of existed in the background and it's it's part of the sort of it's a heavy part of the tapestry of our childhoods and i think uh demolition man was just yeah it was it was a film that we watched multiple times i I don't even remember whether we had it on video or whether it was just that it was always on Sky. Possibly both, I think. But yeah, me and my brother would watch this a lot. But I tell, I tell, one thing I wanted to discuss, actually, before we get into the plot and then talk about the film, is Joel Silver. And the reason why I want to talk about Joel Silver is because... Have any of you guys ever heard of Marco Brambia? No, I had to look him up and... Um... He's he's barely even a film. I mean, no offense to guy, but I mean, uh, he's made more films than you, Devlin. He has made more films than me. But when you look at like, uh, uh, you know, you just expect these kind of films to be in the hands. Of, like, I don't know, I, I would have put him somewhere in the Peter category Hyam, of like, yeah, like that. or like Simon West. You know, one of these guys where it's like you actually know the producer more than you know the director, but the directors are working fairly constantly, and they would have worked their way up maybe from music videos or maybe from less likely TV. Usually, it's music videos and ads that people would come into film directing especially this level of film directing but um he's a uh a, a, a video artist mm-hmm. it's a pretty fucking yeah. good one as well yeah i mean he's his uh his imdb is the, you know the or not his imdb is uh, his wikipedia page which is what i'm on right now but he um yeah he has a you know a bunch of like video installations that have won prizes and and things and then when you go down to his filmography it's uh this excess baggage and Ooh. and a segment in a a, a short film anthology. Well, I, I had a soft spot for um, Excess Baggage. Actually, I, I was more of an Alicia Silverstone guy than a Sandra Bullock guy. In all honesty, Matt, if we're playing top trumps with the uh, female nineties uh, sex pots, then you are well out of your league. There, Bullock wins <laughs> every time. <laughs> okay, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit team Matt slash team Silverstone. Did you hear who recommended? Brambilla to to direct this film though. Hmm. No, 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 no. I heard it was David Fincher. Oh, really? research. David Fincher oh, recommended the Alien Three connection. Well, Patrick, would you mind if I? I'm just going to give some wider context just for those listeners that are like, who's Joel Silver? Pretty much responsible for certainly if you're a, a sort of a, a kind of of a certain age. Most films that you're either fully aware of or you've got a deep-seated love for. So if I go through some of his big hits, produced the what? Well, associate producer on The Warriors, Commando produced, mm-hmm. Die Hard, Predator, Roadhouse, <laughs> The Matrix. He's he's a big. He's one of those prototypical shouty film producers. When I think film producer, obviously nowadays you you think of that scumbag Weinstein, but. 
But in action, you think Joel Silver and you think probably Jerry Bruckheimer and those yeah. types. He's one of those, isn't he? He's like Mr. 80s. Well, well, he's there's even uh, a Lethal Weapon poster on Sunday. Uh, is no, it a Lethal Weapon war. poster or is it a Lethal, lethal Weapon, weapon 3? 3 poster? <laughs> <laughs> you got to get the Pesci in there. Right. Fucking read. But also, uh, to typify the kind of role who Joel Silver is, if anyone's seen uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, he, he even plays the director at the beginning of the film, bollocking Roger Rabbit on his performance. And that's to give an idea of who Joel Silver is, because that, yeah. that's why he's, he was cast in that role, is because <laughs> he is that person on a set. Well, it's interesting, Patrick, that you said that uh, David Fincher had recommended Brambia, because the way I saw it was, was this Silver looking to get them cheap while, you know, get them early while they're cheap. So you think with Die Hard, he brings in McTiernan, who's come from theatre, and he makes this amazing film that has stood the test of time as a action staple. Same with Predator. Commando, okay, you could probably argue less so, but certainly as a cult hit, everyone loves me some Commando. Well, it's not everyone, but certainly most people. Roadhouse, the same. The Matrix, probably different with the Wachowskis, but they'd only done, what, Bound? Bound, and- yeah. So they were still early in their career. He's definitely someone who you said maybe as a patsy, but I saw it as, well, what's the relationship? Is he getting them while they're cheap or is he hiring them so he can basically get them to do the hard work on set, but he directs it from the producing uh, chair? I think it's the latter for this, for this film. I think it's the latter that he, he's essentially in charge here and yeah. I guess, but I mean, uh, uh, where something like the the Matrix would have been very much the creation of the Wachowskis, and that he probably genuinely believed in it and wanted to shepherd it through, because you know it was a uh, it was a bit of a game changer. Yeah. I certainly feel like this is this is more in the sort of it's almost like a Roger Corman sausage factory, but on a much bigger scale. Like I don't think anyone was desperate. Like, they didn't believe that Demolition Man was a, a statement that needed to be made to the world. I think they just wanted to make something that was, you know, fast and exciting and colorful and would make them some money. So um, I, I guess I don't really know much about Joel Silver as to how hands-on he is. Like, I don't know whether they're... Whether they're on, uh, okay, because that's my question. I don't know how many how many producers would actually want to go through the fucking awful nuts and bolts of what it must be like to actually direct a big studio film. Um, I can't imagine it's mega creative. I think the the, the vast majority of it is a total headache. I think well, it comes down to the editing. The... Uh, if, oh, you, sorry, if you think of uh, Predator, there's a good um, making of Predator. The, he's either in or they reference him a lot. And right. I, I think that he hires a director that knows what he's doing. And in this case, too, a DP who knows what he's doing. Mm. And between the two of them, uh, get the pretty pictures on the screen. And then once it comes down to the edit, like we've talked about before with the Costner stuff, it's out of the director's hands. You can kick them right out and just do whatever you want. And that's yeah. just the, the shifty ways that they, the circles that they can, they can work in. The DGA gives you as eight, eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Like you have to get eight weeks and you, uh, I think contractually you are. Yeah. That was the Kevin Reynolds issue. Wasn't it? The DGA cup was the one that he was allowed to complete or they said he could complete it, but then he got turfed out of, of the edit. So yeah, I, I think he's, he's these kind of a uh, cigar chomping, fat man behind the scenes yeah. and uh i think he he manipulates and uh you know he controls it later in the post-production because that's what it ultimately comes down to and, it, and it's quite interesting in the case of demolition man because it was it ran at about two and a half hours maybe more and they actually chopped a lot of stuff out we can maybe get into that later it is very long 
for this for this type of film is it's it's mm-hmm. a hefty slap of film. This is longer than I I would imagine if we go back and look at the running times of all of these bargain bin films we've done so far. I would say it's the longest. What is it? Just shy of two hours, but designed to be longer. Yeah, it's designed. There's a lot of stuff in there that that would have made it about about two and a half hours. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's there's, there's threads. Missing. There's threads left dangling. Mm-hmm. Huge huge gulfs in characters just kind of disappearing themselves from one scene and just emerging in another. Yeah, we'll, we'll, and we'll definitely get into that as we talk about, talk through, um, talk through the story. One of the other things I wanted to say, and it was, it was further to your point, Dablin, with the, uh, where directors were coming from, um, at this, in this era. And you do think that the one thing I will say about Joel Silver is he's clearly got an, an eye or an ear for kind of pop culture and where the medium is shifting. And you think about like Michael Bay, Mick G, Fincher, Joel Schumacher, these directors, um, Rennie Harlan, all coming in into the 90s, and the editing starts to change, and you can see it in this film, where the fast cutting Mm. starts to become a little bit more prominent. But one of the things I will say about Brambeer is, as much as some of the film looks beautiful, and I'll attribute that to Alex Thompson, the cinematographer, the film itself lacks a bit of personality, I guess, from the directing side of life. I wonder if this had been directed by Paul Verhoeven or even Joel Schumacher, we might have gotten a, a, a more campier, more kind of um, bombastic view of the world. It's almost slightly neutered, and certainly in the action sequences, and I'll talk about it when we get into it, but they feel a little bit lame and a little bit lacking in that style. I found some of it quite uneven because of that as well, Gally. You know, like, it's kind of a hard-edged opening to the film that, you know, we, we then try and descend into comedy and mm. some of it's quite uneven because of that I think. Matt, I believe you've got our uh, our plot summary for this one. The year is 2032 the world has become a pussy whipped Brady Bunch version <laughs> of itself run by rogue sissies when blast from the past, biscuits and gravy loving criminal madman and overgrown toddler in dungarees Simon Phoenix <laughs> is thawed out of cryostasis for a parole hearing he violently escapes murder death killing everyone in his path with the aid of mind-boggling newfound abilities to hack computers, drive futuristic cannoli cars, access routes to underground kingdoms, and use state-of-the-art magnetic accelerator phaser guns embedded in his cryo-sludge. He can probably play the accordion too. The San Angeles Police Department, without an NDK taking place in 22 years, realize they can't cope with the coldest Hagendaz loony on the loose and decide to send a maniac to catch a maniac by removing the muscle-bound grotesque and now Synapse suggested seamstress John Spartan from the Icebox 2 to lasso Phoenix's piddly ass. Pre-freezing, Spartan was a kick-ass cop known as the Demolition Man due to his incendiary approach to baddie catching. With 1,000 arrests in three years, he has a loaded history with Phoenix as being one, as being the one man who could catch him back in the 20th. When his explosive tactics and disregard for official police procedure led him to being found guilty of the involuntary manslaughter of 30 civilians. We bear witness to the primitive brutish fossil and Cro-Magnon savage Spartan's Neanderthal ways as he attempts to negotiate the future, doing the VR hunker-chunker with the lovely <laughs> Lieutenant Lenina Huxley, a 20th century obsessed Lethal Weapon 3 and Chili Peppers fan, literally wiping his ass with verbal morality tickets and getting used to eating every meal at Taco Bell. It's revealed the rich and powerful benevolent dictator Cocteau 
is actually responsible for freeing Phoenix and brainwashing him with a hypnotic, murderous urge to assassinate Edgar Friendly, a subterranean dwelling scrap and reluctant leader behind the EF, a rabble of free-thinking rebels, giving him carte blanche to create his perfect society. Spartan gathers his prehistoric bravado and his beret and goes after the psychotic phoenix intent on putting him back on ice before he can defrost the fridge and free 80 of the most dangerous criminals in LA's history from their icy lockdowns. In a final tussle between the nemeses, Spartan meets his match and kicks Phoenix's ass, leaving his future with Huxley and as a reinstated SAPD officer wide open for him to finally learn how that bloody three seashells thing works. Very nice. You really matched his meat. <laughs> oh no good man i mean you really got i mean you got it all in there and there's quite a lot of and you know we mentioned it before about the running time there's quite a lot going on there in is. this film yeah not as much as robin hood but you know enough and not so much of it involves all punching and blowing up and that considering that we like to think of this as one of the sort of quintessential 90s action blowouts yeah surprised mm. at how much of it is uh is non-explosive it surprised me re-watching it again because uh you can actually count them on one hand especially when you've got sylvester stallone boxer extraordinaire versus actual martial artist Wesley Snipes, I was surprised at the lack of fisticuffs. Yeah, there's some thoughtful moments, I think. They, Brambia is kind of colouring it quite nicely with uh, some slower, more thoughtful moments. And, he, and I think he pays a lot of attention to the details of of this film. I don't know how many scripts they went through. I don't know um, too much about the genesis of it. But he, he's really... It feels thought through. Uh, I know it might be dumb, but... Uh, They've actually gone through it with a fine-tooth comb, I think, and actually got got some logic in there. Um, I, I did find out a little about the, the genesis of the script. Uh, I read a, an interview with Daniel Waters, uh, who I guess most people would probably know as the creator of Heathers. Oh, yeah. And Batman Returns, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after Heathers, he, he got, you know, a, a bunch of work. Uh, um, he, he knew Joel Silver through... Um, the uh, the catastrophic Hudson Hawk, and for some reason Silver thought he was you know worth another punt, um, and it was a, a essentially like a, a much more generic action script about two nemeses kind of frozen in time, and then they thaw out in a future where nobody else is violent, and then they do loads of violence on each other. But it was quite quite straightforward. Maybe I don't know. Maybe a little Universal Soldier. Um, and uh, he decided that they they felt that they should kind of mix it up a bit, make it a little more fun. So they gave it to Daniel Waters, uh, who wrote on this for, by his reckoning, two and a half weeks is the amount of time that he gave to the film, uh, during which time he essentially changed everything. He changed so much that that's why his name comes out first in the in the writing credits. Right. Uh, the Writers Guild said that, that so much material was, was generated by him that he essentially gets the, the lead writing credit. Um, and so most of the, uh, the comic stuff, the fish out of water stuff, the buddy cop comedy stuff, that's, uh, that's, uh, Daniel, uh, uh Daniel Waters. And, mm. uh, the, the thing was given a, uh, a kind of a last minute uncredited polish by Fred Decker. And it yeah. was he who, uh, inserted the, um, 96 the, stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. He, he did the prequel cause, uh, by his, well, his, his quote was, uh, uh, if you don't see Kansas, then Oz isn't that impressive. Right. Yeah, so you need to. I, see, I like you that. need to see. Yeah, if you know, if if you go straight into a world where where everything's 
you know, joy, joy feelings and, and stuff. You kind of, you need to see the before and the after. Did you see anything Which about the plagiarism? Place. There was a plagiarism suit as well. I don't know if it went through, but yeah. they put it down to a post-Cold War revenge thing where they were stealing <laughs> the ideas from the enemy. I don't know exactly any more than it's that. A, it but... was a Hungarian author who said that he'd written the book. Now, I mean, often, oh. you know, often these, these things tend to, um, there is a, there's, there's an endless list of, uh, plagiarism claims in screenwriting, mm. uh, uh, there are some which hold more weight than others. Like I would imagine Harlan Ellison's claim over the genesis of the Terminator holds a little more weight than this one, considering that, mm. you know, what was that? Uh, it was a, a Harlan Ellison novella that became a Twilight Zone episode, I think. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Right. So yeah. The li- we talked about it. On yeah. The, yeah. We talked about it in the episode. The likelihood that James Cameron watched that is far higher than the likelihood that coke snorting fiend joel silver is <laughs> is is trawling through the annals of hungarian sci-fi <laughs> uh, i'll tell you one thing that um that i did uh, get excited about uh, and you're absolutely right fred decker had the right instinct is i am a big fan of this opening this opening sort of prologue i think it's great i, I think it's absolutely stupid and brilliant and it's exactly where the film should really remain throughout but it's also weirdly, and this is one of the things that Patrick was talking about, being uneven, Simon Phoenix is quite a sinister, sadistic, uh, you know, little fucker. And I think it's great, this opening <laughs> with Snipes. You've got this contrast of uh, Stallone jumping out of a plane and be like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's my number one and, moment. And, I love that. Yeah, it really is. Well, it's just like how to introduce a character into a film. But it looks great, doesn't it? And you know that that's a real guy jumping out of a helicopter. It's him. It's, it's, it's actually him. great. Oh, really? Get yeah, out of friend, the town, it? it's Stallone. It is. Is it really him? Yeah, genuinely. Oh, wow. On a bungee cord? Yeah. What you see wow. there, that's Sly. Because it really, okay. like... The... When you see Sly, that's Sly. Uh, like... I, I expected that he was going to um, Blackhawk down it out of there, <laughs> like repel. But he doesn't. It's just like he just jumps <laughs> out, and then an amount, an amount of rope just ends... <laughs> And he just fucking snaps like he's been hung. Don't, don't forget, like, he's on the back of Cliffhanger here and he's he's all about, right. like, working at height and he's on his comeback. This is a kind of a renaissance period for Sylvester Stallone. He's trying mm. to make his career better. So a big stunt at the time was a real selling point to, to a film. And Did you get any Running Man uh, vibes from the cruise. opening there when he jumps out? From the some, well, I tell you what, Helicopter opening. Uh, he's a framed yeah. man. Yeah, uh, it kind of felt a bit like that. I know that's 87, so quite a while beforehand, but I do think there's some Arnie in there that they're having a bit of a tussle between the two of them. I think they're very aware of each other's work. It felt running man. The only the other one I got, uh, Matt, Predator 2, uh-huh. you know, the LA, the LA collapsing yeah. in on itself with the, with the war. Yeah. I think, um, and even the opening shot with the Hollywood. Well, that's really uh, cool. I, I'm not on fire. too sure what he's saying. I mean, if he's saying, you know, let's burn down Hollywood and start again, but <laughs> the, it, it really, it's really cool. Uh, it feels like your, your third act is the prologue. Yeah. Uh, and then what one, Potential negative of it is that a lot of the fisticuffs that happens between them gets a, a little repetitive. It happens in, in, in the, the prologue. And then there's one, like a subterranean one under the museum when they fall through the floor. Yeah. And then there's, by, by the time, by the, with the electrocution, the only bit I like there is when he gets electrocuted and there's that crazy shot where he kind of flips up like a salmon and lands on a car. <laughs> <And then laughs> he's fine, which is weird as well. Yeah. 
And then at the very end, they have another, another tussle. And by that point, I, I think, uh, I, I'm very glad of, of the way that, uh, Wesley gets dispatched because it needed something, a little bit of oomph at the end because it was getting a little bit stale as far as the, the fist, fist fights, I think. But yeah, that prologue is really cool. The film does suffer from, uh, Phoenix not being able to shoot straight and not be able to shoot Spartan at all. And there's a really weird standoff moment where, because I, I, I really like Phoenix in this film he's, as a character. I think he's, like you said, Gally, sadistic and Snipes obviously having a lot of fun. And I think he does a really good job in this role, but it, it, he's let down a few times. Like when he's cornered Spartan in that room the first time they meet on the screen in the film, he's got the fire, he's set the petrol, he's thought ahead. But when he sets it alight, they both just stand there in the fire. I've had a big laugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, could just be because it looks cool. I think that's the only reason. And it's yeah. a bit weird. But they did blow up yeah. the building for real. They found a building that needed de- demolishing. And oh, I do like. Well, you big... don't you don't call it demolition, <laughs> man, Patrick, without demolishing at least that's one true. building. They, they really do blow the shit out of it. I am it looks great. Yeah. I will say this as well. You know, I was giving Marco Brambier a little bit of shade earlier. I do think that, and I don't know whether it's Alex Thompson. And the reason why I say Alex Thompson is he's just coming off Alien 3 with Fincher. Yeah. And this opening prologue, I don't know if you noticed, but I, you know I love a good low-angle uh, shot and tilt. He's doing all of that in this opening. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit where Stallone crashes through a wind, uh, a windscreen as he's, uh, yeah. as he's carting through. It looks awesome. I actually think the action in this prologue, if he just managed to be as creative and stage it as, as well as he does in this opening, then I wouldn't have such a problem with some of the fight sequences between the two of them and the shooting that shooting stuff, hmm. which ends up becoming a bit naked gun when yeah. they're just like they're just shooting behind <laughs> stuff and shooting behind stuff. Well, like, well also, what's um, going on here? In this prologue credit, there's a shot which is just the naked gun shot from the from the <laughs> oh, yeah. police car. Yeah, <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, go through the women's locker room and then onto the baseball field. <laughs> It's the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> I love the way that uh, again Snipes is playing it, and I, I've read that people have sort of said he's like the Joker in a way, you know, this agent of chaos. Mm-hmm. And you kind of get that because he's got no real motivation. Well, we talked before mm. about what what the character's doing when you first meet them, and he's doing coke like Scarface in that in that room. <laughs> yeah, and he's got dressed like a Harlequin. Does he make a Scarface reference? For he so does later when uh, Spartan jumps on top of his uh, cannoli car and he tries to shoot it off. But I quite like how uh, the comparison to Joker, because you're right, because he double crosses him and he, he I, although it will go, I'll go into this in a little bit more detail, but he, there's 30 people that Sylvester Stein, uh, Spartan's looking for and he says he's done a thermal scan mm of the building and they're not there and uh, Phoenix says he doesn't know where they are they're, these are the hostages but in fact they are dead and somehow Spartan gets the blame for it but I do love how Phoenix when he's being carried away by the police is like sweetie honey sugar <laughs> <laughs> little, uh, little thoughts uh, little taunts to Spartans, really, really fun, and I really like that. Mm, yeah, it's, it, well, we talk a little bit about Wesley Snipes, just where he was in his career in this point, because I had first seen him in White Men Can't Jump and thought he was awesome. Like he yeah. was just a complete and utter, like, just a magnetic uh, presence. And don't get me wrong, Woody Harrison's great in the film too, but Wesley Snipes is 
just like a, a, a beam of sunlight going through that entire film. Even and as a catchphrase I, I between in, the two, he says, I'll yeah. be goddamned in both films. <laughs> and and I, I also saw him in uh, the Connery film he did. Is it Rising Sun? Um, and then Drop Zone and Passenger 57. And I, But I know that Snipes is more of a dramatic actor. And it's just great that he was able to flip-flop between the two. Like, I could do a Spike Lee film over here. And then I can do this, like, sort of nonsense action film. And he was happy to be a villain as well, which is good. And it's the thing that I, I think in this entire era of action stars, what is a shame is that all of them seem to want to protect their own image and not, and not duel off with each other. You know, it's what, you know, it's a, it's such a shame. So I was happy to see Snipes go up against Stallone and, and kind of accept himself as the villain because the, yeah, it's a, it's a shame. It never happened more often. That's a good point, and it's it's probably a good time to talk about the alternate casting. Uh, there was a Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal uh, offer that happened with the two of them wanting to, to face off, but neither of them wanted to be the bad guy. Like, Seagal should have just been begging for this role, I think, but it was during his uh, <laughs> during his prime. And I think he thought it would last forever. What a fool. <laughs> and, uh, Seagal was offered Spartan, I think, and uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme was offered Phoenix. But yeah, neither of them wanted to be the baddie. And Jackie Chan was after that. They wanted yeah. Jackie Chan. To and he didn't want to be a bad guy at all. Because of the, I think it's something, it's more to do with the Chinese culture. Chinese exactly. Culture. Yeah. He just didn't want to be mm. seen. After playing a hero for so long, he just didn't want to take a step back, I don't think. Um, Not I couldn't he, he didn't want to let his public <laughs> yeah. down, apparently. Yeah. I couldn't imagine Jackie Chan as a villain at all. And I guess, I guess what no. Joel Silver does later on is he uses uh, Jet Li, doesn't he, in Lethal Weapon yeah. 4? Mm. Yeah. But Jet Li's persona is completely different to Jackie oh, Chan's. Yeah, yeah. He's know. not he's not Jackie having fun like, when he's doing his, his yeah. bits. Yeah. yeah, Jackie Chan is not Simon Phoenix. There's, there's no way. No. You, could you imagine Jackie Chan in those Beetlejuice trousers as well? That would be. I can imagine Dennis Rodman in the in the Beetlejuice trousers. We mentioned it a little before we started recording, but the the hair color and uh, apparently Snipes hated the blonde. Uh, it, he got rid of it as soon as the the shoot had finished. But Dennis Rodman actually kind of adopted it and started using it. Yeah, the, the last one's very popular on Netflix at the minute. It's it's revealed in there, isn't it? Which was it's quite cool. Um, Rodman, was, this was quite an influential film for fashion, and so I think one of you said it earlier, like the pop culture that Joel Silver kind of recognizes. I think. That there is that element in this film. He had such a strong. When I looked at his filmography, certainly for about five years, from 1989, well, six years, from from sort of uh, Major League to 95, when they do Money Train, he is on an absolute roll, and he's in every film he's in, he's the best thing in it. And then, obviously, in the sort of superhero realm, he then brings a character that I definitely didn't even know. Uh, until the film came out, which is Blade, and he was great in the first two, uh, I would suggest, and then we everyone kind of knows uh, by the third one he'd uh, he sort of checked out. But he's a very serious individual, isn't he? Like reading reading some of his uh, kind of quotes and anecdotes about his life, he's quite an intense guy, but on screen he's such a fun sort of I don't know, like a a, a burst of personality. So it's uh, it's real dichotomy between him being this serious philosophical guy who takes himself very seriously but on screen he seems to really enjoy lampooning himself it is blade trinities it is the third one where he refused to open his eyes for a shot isn't it? <laughs> yes it is, yeah. <laughs> where, and, and he, <laughs> he had to his eyes he wouldn't turn up on set ever and so they would just have like ryan reynolds running running bullshit lines at a, at a oh my god mm. yeah 
Yeah. Oh. And obviously, you know, he then went to jail for tax evasion. I think it was about $4 million, which I'm sure he could have just wow. paid that off. Like, it's weird that it ended up getting well, to him that, having that to go all, to jail. I'm always confused by, by how wealthy people manage to get so poor so quickly. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And, and, it, and it kind of feeds into me longing for when the height of the action era, um, seeing these these team-ups and these face-offs. Mm. Oh, there's another film. Um, but you know what I mean? Mm. Like, that now the Expendable films have done that, but they're all washed up, old, and no one gives a monkeys. Like, I don't want to see old Van Damme versus old Stallone watching stuntmen do the, the, the fight. And it's like, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like, you've missed the boat, team. It's a shame. It's interesting. This is this is 1993, and it was the same year because uh, uh, Sly and Arnie had their kind of their... Their head to head, you know, they were kind of friendly competition, I guess you would call it. Um, but this is the, the year where both of them decided that they needed to make not just an action film, but a meta action film that comments mm. on them being uh, like a relic of a, of a mm. previous era. And I went through and I just mm. kind of looked at the, the filmographies of the, the pair of them, Sly and, and Arnie. And, um, so, Arnie's filmography really gets going after. So you've got Conan and the Terminator that are the two kind of star-making performances. But you would say it's Commando and Predator as a one-two that makes him into an action superstar. And that's uh, 1985 and 1986. Mm. And then Sylvester Stallone was obviously, he had a bit of a head start. He was, you know, respected as a, as a you know, more of a proper actor, having created Rocky and, and that guy. So he's, he's a, a little further into his career, but his action megastar uh, uh, turn comes in probably First Blood Part 2. Everything before that would be considered like real films, maybe. But now... Yeah, you they're know, more dramatic was, roles, aren't they? Yeah. And then first, that's also 1985. So like, so that means that really the, the, the peak era is only eight years, 85 to 93, before which they, they both realized that maybe we're going to have to start kind of incorporating how outmoded this type of filmmaking is within the text of the film itself. And if you look at like, so just running through Sylvester Stallone's kind of peak era, 85 to 93 in order, we have uh, Rocky four, which was obviously massive Cobra, which was pretty successful uh, over the top, which was a notorious flop Rambo three, which was a big, ridiculous hit uh, lockup, which does anyone you know, I remember Lockup. Like, it's sort of you know, it's 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 largely forgotten. Didn't really make any money. Uh, Tango and Cash, which is fucking ace. Um, Rocky Five, which was a big letdown. Uh, Oscar, a John Landis comedy, which I have literally just heard of. Oh, I, it was on Sky all the time, Devlin. I really? I just like you went through their filmographies, and Stallone yeah. is coming off two shockers. So when when Arnie pivots into comedy. Which I think he sits sits far better in. Stallone tries it, and Stallone is one of the one of my things in this film is he's got a couple of good lines, but a lot of his one line gags are they fall flat because I just don't think he's self aware enough. He takes himself too seriously, in my opinion. And he did Oscar and Stop or My Mum Will Shoot, which is yeah. absolutely yeah. Red that to us? When was that? That was there directly before, and then Cliffhanger and this were virtually well, they were the same year of release. Um, there were his comeback films. Yeah, oh, yeah big time, big time. 
I remember reading a great article in Total Film a few years ago, though, on the rivalry of Stallone and Schwarzenegger. And it was like, Arnie, <laughs> I just want to just give this kind of this story. Arnie said it was this little, he got a phone call from James Cameron about this little sci-fi film in, in the mid eighties called The Terminator. <laughs> and like it completely changed him because he was always gunning for Stallone until that point and trying to, Stallone's box office was huge, uh, up until that point. And that's where the turning point for Arnie was. But going into comedy in the nineties is, I don't know, like it's kind of genius for Arnie and Stallone. I still like daylight. It's a little bit like the Beatles and the Stones. It's like the, the, the Stones copied everything the Beatles did. And, uh, it was still good, <laughs> yeah. but you know, it's like if they do Pepper, they do, uh, Satanic Majesties and they kind of dress the same on the, on the album covers and things. And they kind of followed suit a lot of the way. <laughs> but I, I'm a bit ashamed to say that I didn't see Rocky until my late twenties, early thirties. And wow. I'm yet to see the Rambo sequels in their entirety. But um, I, I really enjoy First Blood and I really kind of respect him. He's quite an intelligent guy. If you listen to his commentary on that disc, it's really, really good. And Demolition Man was probably part of my the first wave of Stallone films that I got into with Cliffhanger and Stop or My Mum Will Shoot. Believe it or not, I <laughs> kind of liked it as a kid. Tango yeah. and Cash, uh, Specialist and Assassins. Uh, that was kind of my era of Stallone before I kind of lost lost touch with him a little bit. Well, he was definitely trying to become more of a dramatic actor again, wasn't he? And and the the role that I always point to, obviously there is Rocky, where he's created a, a, a severely iconic character that I think will will live on um, for sure. But I absolutely adore him in Copland, and yeah, I, I yeah, always wish very... that he just had the courage mm, of his convictions yeah. to go, okay. Just ditch the action stuff. I mean, I, I hate the Expendables films because I just think they are completely expendable. They're just they're just not even worth your time watching because you think you're going to really enjoy it because it sounds like the best fan fiction film you could ever think of, and then you watch it and you go, you know what, this is a bit rubbish. Well, I think it is. It's it's lame. Like nothing happens. You know, they're just like. Uh, <laughs> I'm, you can't really do something like this without just going for. Uh, obnoxious self-aware excess but that doesn't really work when you know that that's what you're going for like the the sort of the the simple kind of dumb-headed joy of a lot of these films is that they are somewhat oblivious to to how ridiculous they are those films and the that we love those action films devlin are fueled by cocaine and excess money. That's yes. the thing. You know, the Expendables <laughs> films are calculated and yeah. they're just they're just puff pieces at the end of the day. And I'm not a big fan of them at all. And 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 yeah, when you think in Copland, there's Stallone being a real actor, something that Arnie, let's be fair, could not do. And and you just think, why didn't you just stay with that? And you would have garnered a bit more credibility. And I could could have seen him kind of carrying on that way but he just yeah he clearly... kind of settled into a bit of an elder statesman type thing planet hollywood guy. yeah planet hollywood. yeah i know it's this like, he, he you can see him every three or four uh, misses he goes back to the franchise that he knows yeah. i'll make another rambo well, he's doing it i'll right make now. another rocky and he's, he's doing gonna, it right now he's yeah. gonna make another demolition man Oh God! It's like I don't want to see goosed up Tom Berenger looking Stallone anymore <laughs> in an action film. I think the uh, the Copland thing only works once. I think it's a once in a career. It's it, I liken it to Unforgiven with Clint because I think you're playing on the expectations, like your star 
Um, nice. I, I don't yeah. think we've mentioned uh, Andy Willoughby before. Me and Chris had a, a teacher called and- Andrew Willoughby. We did a film studies course with him. And we, when I was with him, we did a, a module on star power and star persona. And we had to break down um, movie stars and talk about, you know, what are the aesthetics as far as what they do. And um, we didn't look at Copland, but uh, we looked at Unforgiven in quite a lot of detail. It, it only really works because of our expectations of, of who we know Clint Eastwood to be. And Copland kind of works like that with me. He's kind of subverting it and... and I think he's called Freddy, and was he called Freddy in that movie? He's yeah, deaf, Freddy. He's deaf and yeah. it's fantastic, and I, I really think it only works. I, I think it only works because of what we know about him, and uh, uh, it is a little bit lazy for him to keep returning to franchises. But um, I, I think the evidence sort of points to like he, he needs to do that to to keep going. Without uh, writing to generate his own material again, he's kind of he is kind of resting on his laurels a bit. But I think it's one of his the, the only choices for him. I don't know about you. I know it's an Austin Powers gag, the freezing. But I was just on Willy Watch. I, every time, when, when Stallone's yeah. walking through and he gets into that tub, that's, that basically yeah. hot tub of, of jelly, <laughs> I was like, instead of, and this is not to suggest any sexual orientation, I was just thinking, I wonder if we can see his dick. And it, uh, that was what I was looking for and the, the whole and the time. Answer, the answer is yes. It's well, I actually, we can definitely see his testicles yeah. dragging across the when glass they, floor. Yeah, like, when they're piping and the squeaking. You know, I splat it up against it like a chicken. Disturbingly, I've written mangina in my notes and <laughs> in, in an effort to disguise these overt penises, I think uh, each criminal sort of a, appears to have a... It's like, they it's tuck like a, it. A, a tuck in, yeah. They're going buff- a, a, Buffalo Bill. Yeah, an icy <laughs> Buffalo Bill. So this cryo prison, which was built in 96, which feels a little bit too future tech, especially considering it's three years after the film's released, that this thing would yes, exist. completely up and running by this point. It's a plot device. I get it. It's not a problem. Um, but some of the future stuff that they 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 kind of predict, like this FaceTime, mm-hmm. the self-driving cars. Um, oh, hold on, hold on. They don't predict. Like, come on. Yeah, you know the, the like they well, put the science in there. The, in, the, you know. the video chat thing has been the video around chat. There. Patrick, give the film some credit. Video chat. Yeah. yeah, there isn't even an iPhone at this point. All right, but I mean, there is, there is a promo for FaceTime from Steve Jobs in 1986. I think the facial recognition yeah. thing plays in. I mean, you've got you've got I've got a list here with retina coding. Uh, the the idea they, re- they really thought retina scannings were going to be a thing. <laughs> Everyone they did. did. They really did. <laughs> And like this idea, even the sex scene, I'll, we'll probably get to it. I think that there's a particularly disturbing thing happening at the moment with deep fakes. And um, I think that could be a, a good prediction as far as that goes. If two people sit down with these VR things on and you've got facial recognition and the idea of deep faking pornography between two people using VR, like we are there now, you could you could literally do it. And you've got the organic uh, bioengineered microchips, which is a big fear factor in Korea at the moment. If you if you go shopping, there's always a guy with a, a, a picket sign saying, don't accept the chip when they make you take it because you'll go to hell and all this stuff. Uh, and also there's another thing that the, they call Spartan a dirty meat eater at one point. So I don't know if you've seen the Simon Amstel uh, Carnage movie that he did uh, about in the future, we'll all look look back on the idea that we eat meat uh, as being a, a historical a moral mistake akin to a lot of other things that, that, we've, that we've done wrong. But um, 
it's kind of outlawed. Uh, this idea that meat and the things that are bad for you will be outlawed and we'll look back from a moral perspective on it. Um, yeah, so there's, a, I think there's a few predictions in there. Maybe not exactly as far as uh, Steve Jobs would, would, you know, would like to think, but yeah, there's a few in there. No, but the, it just like showing off the science fiction mm-hmm, stuff mm-hmm. in here, doesn't it? Uh, it's, it's banned alcohol and Taco Bell's now the only restaurant uh, going on. Uh, bad language is. Are we going to blur out? Well, all I, our hope so. I hope so. The sound effects, Gally, throughout this. We're all gonna, we're all gonna fall foul of the verbal morality statute. Yeah, but it only goes to it only goes to two, right? You get one credit, and then the next one is the San Andreas police or or oh, yeah. well, I'm waiting. They're still not here. De- well, depending, because of course, like sits there and you. Oh, that is an inconsistency. Um, yes. There's there's uh there's one kind of future prediction which I think sort of sets a tone for um quite a lot of this film being uh. uh I think we're, we're probably jumping across the whole film here, but um, it's been it's been sort of in recent years a bit co-opted by the sort of anti-PC kind of right, like the libertarian right, which is uh, uh, and there's a couple of bits and pieces in it which um, which sort of I don't think that the, the film has anything like that that sort of uh, intent. I think it's just kind of lampooning things. Um, but I can see, you know, the sort of people that take this stuff far too seriously. Um, there is, uh, the, the sequence where, uh, post release Simon Phoenix, uh, shoves that guy out of the little telephone booth that's just telling him how special he is. Which is a great sequence, but it's, uh, uh, you know, this, this, it's kind of an encapsulation of, of when you get, you know, angry baby boomers talking about the snowflake generation and that, Everyone needs a participation trophy and no one's allowed to be, you know, have their feelings hurt and stuff. I just thought that is very prescient. I don't know. Lately, I just don't feel like there's anything special about me. You are an incredibly sensitive man who inspires joy, joy feelings in all those around you. Well, there's another thing about the uh, the police need to be violent and oppressive, um, and that's another worrying thing. And beer, burgers, guns, and sex, and it's like a Republican dream, isn't it? With muscle cars and like it's very America, freedom, patriotic bullshit kind of thing. Well, yeah, and, and I totally agree, Matt. Because Devon, you're saying you, you kind of think that it's just here as window dressing. Oh, I think well, it's, it's not. It's the absolute perspective of Joel Silver. Is this not the man yeah. who, who okay. made his entire career on uh, sex, violence, and bulging muscles? That's, and here he is. Yeah, no, that's. I think I think it's aware of it, and yeah. I, I think um, well, I think they're aware of it. But I, when I look at say that, I think that the majority of the tone, at least, of the script comes from Daniel Waters, and I think that uh, his perspective would be uh, far less kind of. So I think he's putting the stuff in. Uh, I also I don't think the film takes itself seriously and I don't think it should be taken seriously enough that no, people would, no, no. would would actually think, yeah, yeah, stick it to them. Stick it to I, the bloody snowflakes because I think everyone <laughs> comes out of this looking absurd. Yeah. Well, all I would say, though, is you could substitute the line that Stallone says at the beginning, which is, send a maniac to catch a maniac. And you could replace <laughs> that with, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun 
in a good guy with a gun. Yeah. Because that's yeah, kind that of, is. that is kind of the, the, the mm. film's view by the end of it. It's like, yeah. get the guns! You know, and, and like, like, Matt, like Matt says, it's, it, not, not to say that that's Stallone's perspective, but I think Silver kind of is harkening back to the good old days when you could be a bit misogynistic yeah. and even the kiss yeah. at the end where like Sandra Bullock's like, Oh, <laughs> is this what all fluid transfers are like? It's like, what are you on about? What are you doing? You're just going to completely disregard your entire societal values because Stallone kicked someone's ass and he just gave you a slow yeah. kiss. With, with that kiss, I, I watched it with Melissa and she, she groaned when he grabbed it. Yeah. No, that's, what that's did that remind you God of? That kind say, of lunge, that the yeah. kind of the lean, was it kind of like a Western, like something you'd it's see the, in a Western? Um, no, I thought it was the, you know, the, the famous um, post-World War II, you know, mm. image of the, the soldier. And that's the, it. No, yeah, no, I know the picture, the sailor. Isn't um, he supposed to be like mourning his wife? And no, no, that goes out the window with the VR. That goes out the window with the yeah. Literally, one scene you get with that. Yeah, you do. And 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 I guess one of the things, one of the differences between Demolition Man and Last Action Hero, and it does speak to what you're saying, Devlin, is I do think in Last Action Hero, as much as it's quite, it's bloated, and there's way too much stuff in there. There's a bit more heart and a bit more love and admiration for. The, the, the past and those action hero types. Whereas in this, really, our only conduit for it is the lovely Lenina Huxley, who is great, but it's it's sort of like, it's there, but it's not really there. It's touched upon, but they don't really want to, they don't go into it in any kind of detail. She she hearkens for, for some action, and Stallone just so happens to represent that as this one guy, John Spurton, the demolition man. Yeah. <laughs> um, but speaking of which, Bullock is uh, is is my favourite in this film. I think she's absolutely wonderful, utterly charming. America's sweetheart. She takes the baton from Julia Roberts and she runs with it for the next twenty years. Um, <laughs> I think she's I think she's so good in this. Did the eyebrows no, not the bother character... you at all? Just the the very thin eyebrows. Uh, they're a bit weird. Yeah. yeah, they are a bit weird. But you know, she's... oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. She... It's, no. it's overly yeah. overly uh, done. Are they yeah. very yeah. salted? Very 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 thin. Yeah. Uh, okay. Laurie Petty was originally cast, and poor Laurie Petty just couldn't catch a break in the nineties, could she? As a as someone trying to get to like A list status, in the end, she just ended up being, you know, Laurie Petty. It's such a shame, but creative differences. And what did you say, Devlin? A uh, uh, severe slash fatal lack of chemistry between her and Sylvester Stallone. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a different, um, which... a different Lenina Huxley, I would imagine, because she's quite a, a a sort of esoteric kind of individual isn't she's she? she's a lot scrappier which is weird because it would have actually um it would have suited uh, a certain aspect of the character which is you know the the kind of desperate for adventure kind of not really fitting into this very passive docile society uh by virtue of being a little more kind of free thinking and uh, and impulsive. I, I like her in uh, 28 Days, the alcoholic movie with uh, Steve Buscemi. Uh, that's uh, along with Speed, I think they're my top 2 um Sandra Bullock's but I I like her in this but I I just didn't get the 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 initial feels that you got Gally I think uh, like Kelly Preston I got it in Twins like Sharon Stone Total Recall I got it Valeria Galino in you know everything but yeah San- Sandra Bullock kind of I I like her performances but it didn't have that immediate kind of attraction with her I'm not not really 
Sure. All right. Well, I mean, um, I mean, Dally, I'm, I'm with you, mate. Yeah. Don't worry. Well, Patrick, Patrick literally sent me a WhatsApp at like 1 a.m. when he literally watched it. Oh, hold on. And you just, just said, <laughs> did, what did you say? Oh, she's so fit. Somebody's <laughs> telling tales outside of class. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, Your bloody grass. <laughs> wasn't prepared to be this blindsided, talking of which. Is that what she won the, the blind stuff? Is that what she won the Oscar for? Uh, I think so. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of, uh, um, Sandra Bullock. I forgot how hot she was. So 1am I had to tell, tell the group. So to speak. <laughs> and I just, I, re- I replied in a very, very clever and funny way and just said to enhance your calm because obviously it was late, late in the night. Or early in the morning, depending. Thanks, thanks, sir. It's all right, mate. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Thank you very much. That that'll stay in. I do. Um, if we're talking about Sandra Bullock in the film, like I think Hooksy's great in this. I, I do like her in this film a lot. I was I, I really, I felt really let down at the end of the film, though, when she kicks ass and she's awesome and she's really she's getting her wish and she wants some action and she really helps out um Stallone, but then he just knocks her out and does it all himself and it. Really, it was a real injustice. I don't mind because she, she's killed. You know, that's her arc. And... That's her arc that she that she kills a guy. But you know that they, you would think that they would find find her like some some bullshit B mission for her to do. There's usually a, a thing like, oh, you a have computer to press, to hack yeah, or something. You have to press this button or do because she's shown earlier in the film that she's very good at, uh, uh, at navigating the systems in the sea. She's the only one in the police station who knows how. Yeah, it. they do set that up. That's good. Yeah, that yeah. might work. Uh, ideally, Glenn Shaddix would have been more of a, a badass and she would have had to have taken him down in some comedic fashion. Oh, in the novelization, but... he's he's a eunuch. Oh, well. Cocteau doesn't want him taken over, so uh, he, you know, chops him off. No, I, 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 Matt, I did feel let down, though, that yeah, although, yes, killing the guy was, was good for her character art, she didn't, her character didn't deserve to be just put by the wayside like that and the film doesn't give a reason for it because i think she even says uh at the end oh um we're supposed to be a team yeah no and he just says i think he just shrugs his shoulder and just goes <laughs> <laughs> thank you for rendering me unconscious actually i did it for your own good we're supposed to be a team we are Why? Are all fluid transfer activities like this? Better. Better? Why? And of course we get the nude, the unnecessary nudity in this film. <laughs> yeah. Which, when he has that, that phone call, which is oh, so yeah. random. Yeah. <laughs> It, it, it's almost like the Under Siege stuff, isn't it? Like, we forgot to put boobs in this movie. Like, you said that last time, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Hold on. There's, there's you know, there's nothing Joel in Silver, this. yeah, exactly. Joel Silver, someone, an executive producer went, wait a minute. <laughs> we don't even see Sandra Bullock's boobs. Oh, I need some boobies. And it's, it's such a random phone call, isn't it? Like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Like, oh dear. Yeah. Plus, <laughs> why would she be doing that if the world is now sexless and non-contact? Mm. Well, and, just like just like lockdown, Patrick. There are those that will flout the rules. Yeah. <laughs> I did get like that. This film may have influenced other things, you know, in the future. Like uh, Equilibrium. If you saw that film. The, mm. um, oh, the Christian Bale. Uh, yeah. Everyone's calm has been enhanced. 
So it is. You can't have uh, any emotion. Well, I think they're actually drugged up. Yeah. in that one they can't can't show emotion, is it? They're completely yeah. sterile. Um, and and there's yeah, like yeah. you say, there's a similar thing with this. The world is tranquil, sterile, yeah. but it's also a fascist state. Like the police yeah. outfits are very nazi ss um the well it, the, it um, apes the uh brave new world well, the very judge dread yeah, it's all it's, the older tuxley thing and and that was that novel un, came out in nods to it as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's 1932 and they they made this one uh 2032 so it's exactly 100 years later and uh oh, okay. lenina huxley obviously comes from aldous huxley and the main character is called lenina so they took that too from the book she's called lenina crown in the book so it's like a hundred year update of uh, of Brave New World, kind of. What I did like in the police uh, station is just how many nineties supporting <laughs> actors were in it. When Roger Predactor turned up, I was very happy. I was yeah. like, uh, Roger well, Predactor. That, that guy was uh, Bob Good. <laughs> that, that, that guy's like that guy's the cop of the entire nineties. In in fear, he's in Fear and Loathing. He's the angry cop who's yelling yeah. at the um the guy at the desk. He's in Halloween Five as a cop. He's a cop in Lawnmower Man. He's a cop in <laughs> yeah. the Fighters. Like, <laughs> I absolutely love the fact that it was Roger Predactor. I don't yeah. know the actor's real name, but he's, uh, he's Troy yeah. Evans. His name's Troy Evans. Hmm. <laughs> He's also in Under Siege and Planes, Trains and Automobiles, and he's yeah. the coach in Teen Wolf as well. Who's the cop that uh, remembers uh, Sergeant? Oh, that's Bill Cobb. He's uh, the, the young version is played by the guy from Die Hard. He's one of the Agent I, Johnson. I must have missed the young version. Uh, he's he's at the very beginning he... in the prologue. He's in the hel- helicopter, and he he's he's played by. Oh, the, thank the, you. The, the African American. So I was thinking, you know, why didn't we establish him in '96? And I couldn't figure it out at all. And then yeah. Bill Cobb, who is in the Bodyguard, he's the one who hires Frank Farmer. Yeah, I know Frank <laughs> yeah, Farmer. Yeah, he is. Man. That's where I recognised him, and I was so I was so happy to see him again in this. And yeah, I love the fact him. that it's like. They finally, they finally grounded me. It's like, dude, you're like 80. When you fly the helicopter. Yeah. Oh, no, I just loved it. And the fact that Bob Gunton, the evil warden from, uh, from Shawshank or the evil, um, the evil animal owner from Ace Ventura when nature calls. <laughs> just the fact that he's in this and he's, he's so good as Chief Earl. I love the fact that he does nothing at all, but takes all the credit. It's like, we've apprehended the, uh, the, the cryocon Simon there's, Phoenix. There's a great little <laughs> weird sequence after he does his uh, his video chat after he has a Zoom conference with um, with Raymond Cocteau and he sits down at his desk and he's like uh, any means necessary or whatever. And there's just there's him in the frame and then a giant portrait of him taking up the other half of the frame. Oh no, it's really good. And the the other one that we need to make mention is is Benjamin Bratt. Good, good to see him. And he, to be fair, him and Bullock. You know, they obviously continue it on in uh, miscongeniality, but they've they've clearly got like a little yeah. little bit of chemistry going on. And his on. Uh, his character name, a lot of the character names are bizarre, but his is uh, you. I I only heard it last uh, last night or the night before when I was watching this again. It was um, he's he's called Alfredo Garcia. <laughs> yeah. As in, bring me, as in bring me the head of. Yeah. <laughs> he, he has a hilarious finale doesn't he yeah when he just rocks up all costumes my favorite bit with phoenix is when he's at the telephone bit and he's like oh i could play the accordion too Ooh. yeah and in i his, just uh, love in his dungarees which in his dungarees procured well somewhere. where did the dungarees where did the dungarees come from 
No, no moth damage, nothing. No, <laughs> I the cryo the cryo prison must have a locker with like what you were wearing before you got naked, um, <laughs> and that's where it came from because no one else is wearing dungarees. Everyone else is in the komodo kind of Japanese robe stuff. Is it komodo? Did I say that right? Uh, people are wearing oh. people are wearing no, no. komodo. Yeah. Yeah, what... I think it's quite telling that we don't see like Wesley Snipes topless because he'd have been in great shape as well, and just Sylvester Stallone because that that would have been a sly thing. I reckon there was a thinking behind the the Japanese influence and the Asian influence to the costumes. Uh, although it's it, it, the the references to Asia are handled quite poorly at times. Like there, there's an unfortunate moment with Phoenix. Oh, this... uh, what, what what I'm going to call the uh, I'll be very careful. Okay, I won't even I won't even do what I was going to do, and. Uh, some kids pass him in a museum and he says something. Uh, if it's an ad lib, it's a very dodgy one. And, uh, yeah. but as far as the costumes, the, apparently the ozone layer, uh, influenced the, the, the heavy Japanese style robes. It's supposed to cover and protect the skin from the harmful rays of the future with the, with the ozone layer, which was a talking point in, in 93, obviously. So it comes from a, um, a logical place, but uh, it is abused by the script writers or by uh, Snipes. I don't know who. Exactly. I thought they'd just kind of gone with it as a, a the you know Japan certainly has a perception of being a, a kind of ocean of zen and calm. orderly. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I took it at that. Yeah, I had it as that, and also maybe a, a kind of a, a relic of the eighties and the Japanese corporate paranoia. I, I saw it as <laughs> oh, like. Yeah. Maybe some sure. of that, but no, that 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 well, that's a far more, um, yeah, that's a far more acceptable. Reason there's also than... um, there's also a kind of uh, unfortunate silent geisha type serving woman behind Raymond Cocteau all the time. Yeah, she's got no lines either. She's just uh, in the background. Also, where do all those hot chicks from? Uh, hot chicks come from when they get thawed out with the bad guys with Jesse Ventura. All all those women that are around them were they thawed out? I think they were thawed out. A table full of... Uh, uh, Where did their costumes come from? House pets. I love the fact that when the police approach, and, it, and they, it, it's essentially another future prediction, they are essentially asking YouTube how to apprehend a maniac. <laughs> yeah. it's like, a, I love a, that they a, keep uh, saying the word maniac. Yeah, uh, maniac a maniac is imminent. Who doesn't, who doesn't abide by the rules, they're a maniac. I love it. Maniac is imminent. Request advice. With a firm tone of voice, demand Maniac lie down with hands behind back. Simon Phoenix, lie down with your hands behind your back. What's this? Six of you, such nice, tidy uniforms. Oh, I'm so scared. What, you guys don't have sarcasm anymore? Maniac has responded with a scornful remark. Approach and repeat ultimatum in an even firmer tone of voice. Add the words, or else. I heard they had to slow him down because his his kung fu was so good for the for the camera to actually catch some of the stuff he was doing. That they had to get Snipes to slow down some of his that movements. Is, that is so either true or like a sort of amazing thing that you would tell a mate as a twelve year old. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it does sound like that. <laughs> Mate, well, right? Jackie Chan, right? It reminds Jackie me of, Chan, it reminds me of that episode right. of The Office. Yeah, The Office. When that computer nerd is like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I don't remember him in way of. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Snipes made it up. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
I think Devlin, you had a theory about, and, and it's true, right? That John John Woo didn't come across to sort of Hollywood to make Hollywood films until sort of it was around this era, couple, yeah. So yeah, maybe you, a you year or to, two later. You had to get the 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 kind of the the Hong Kong and, and Chinese action filmmakers had to actually come across, and then like Yun Wu Ping would have come across, and um, they didn't start doing kind of very. Uh, uh, um, Asian-influenced action scenes until several years later. Uh, so what you end up with is these kind of awkward, clunky styles. Because most film, most Hollywood action films is, is based around running, explosions, car chases, gunfights, punch-ups, that sort of thing. Whereas filming martial arts is really kind of specific. I guess uh, you would know more about this than I would, Gals, being a, a an early Van Damme fan of the kind of the early era um, was stuff like kickboxer and no retreat, no surrender. Did they make them in Asia with local crews? No. Well, so certainly with kickboxer shot in, in Thailand and, but Van Damme directed all the fight sequences. And to be fair, watching, watching them back now, it's essentially a slow-mo montage. It's not particularly, um, it's not particularly great, but there's a couple of good shots that, that help sell the Van Damme-ness of it all. There's a couple of like, flip kicks and um and sort of big they they basically stage it and at least give it some choreography the the disappointing bit in this film is that again you've got a real martial artist in wesley snipes and you've got someone who's a broodish brawler you think well there's two styles that you could combine you can stage it uh in a way that means you can show off both styles and you can and you can shoot it that way but unfortunately brambia just kind of goes for close-ups and it looks really crap just doesn't quite sell the kicks just a lack of uh, a lack of time and a lack of experience and a lack a lack of investment in the sequences one of the reasons why jackie chan other than uh, um you know the fact that he didn't want to play a villain the reason why he was so kind of late coming across to hollywood considering how he was probably offered quite a lot of roles was um that uh, he would say that the crews aren't just aren't up to it the, the stunt crews aren't up to it obviously jackie chan in mm. all of his films especially the kind of the the slightly bigger ones, uh, the English language ones in the nineties kind of rumble in the Bronx and who am I and all that kind of stuff. It's if you watch the, the guys he's fighting against, it's the same dudes over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it's cause they're all from his stunt school. Uh, when you come to Hollywood, you don't get that. You get, you know, whoever these guys, these guys aren't stuntmen really. The guys who, uh, Wesley Snipes is beating up. They're not going to be able to sit there and, and go through, you know, a, a huge sequence with, with no cuts. You're going to have a dude who has to stand exactly where he has to stand and then he's going to get kicked in the face and then you're going to cut and then you're going to bring in another dude. You do get the, uh, the John Woo-esque, uh, r- running jump and shooting the gun in midair yeah. though, don't you? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's easier to love. <laughs> so, so we've not talked about the benevolent Cocteau, but one of the things that the film sort of skirts over is that has, has Phoenix been? Yes, he's got all this knowledge of the world, and that's what gives him the advantage. But has he also been enhanced? Yeah, I don't know if it's physical. It, it's like um, cryo sludge, they call it. Whatever they put in. Um, yeah, he's he's been enhanced. Uh, I think Sly gets uh, to be a seamstress because that's going to be his rehabilitation. Um, but as the as the the corrupt Cocteau has, has uh, had a hand in unfreezing um, Simon Phoenix. He can hack computers and uh, he, he knows how to use a lot of the, 
the modern technology, I think. So I, I don't know, physically, maybe his body's been enhanced. It would, it would make sense. It's the thing that, um, Sylvester Stallone says in his expository conversation with Lenina Huxley, where he says, mm. uh, uh, he goes into the, the sledge and he comes out. Yeah. And he knows, but he also says, uh, and he's like three times stronger than he ever was. Right. I don't know if that, yeah. that was just because he's, he's now tapped into the entire society or if he's actually physically three times stronger. Mm. No, but it doesn't matter. It makes no it makes no odds because the film's not really interested in it. It was just I mm. wanted that clarifying because I still, you know, twenty twenty watches in, still haven't quite worked that one out. <laughs> I think it just adds the odds, doesn't it? The idea that yeah. he's three times stronger than he was, and he was he was struggling with him in ninety six, so it just ups the odds a bit as far as him versus Spartan. You get that moment, don't you? And I do, you know, I do like the the way that they introduce the John Spartan of it all after Wesley Snipes has kind of kicked everyone's ass and. And he's uh, blown up the cars, and they can't believe it. They've never seen a, a 187, a code 187, mm-hmm. murder, death, kill. Um, that 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 Zachary Lamb just uh, comes up and's like Simon Phoenix. Yeah, and he's made for a trailer, isn't it? It's so good when he's like, yeah. "Only one man had stopped him." Mm-hmm. They used to call him the Demolition Man. Right. I, 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 it's just great. Isn't it? You know what? He's not wrong. Because in the start of the film, they do call him the Demolition Man. <laughs> <laughs> and the title of the film is... Yeah, I, it, yeah. It, but I do like that. And then when they when they thaw him out, um, you know, they, they, they speak to, like, the big one. Obviously, L.A. gets a lot yes. of earthquakes, so there's there's been a earthquake. And, and when they well say as... the big one, that is a thing that they are actually, you know, that is a thing that people talk about, that they are just waiting. It's like, um, I think anywhere that's on a fault line, certainly when I was living in Japan, there was the same thing where people would, in the, mm. the city where I was living, because it's a coastal city, uh, a lot of people I spoke to were just had this kind of sanguine acceptance that at one point or another, a giant tsunami is going to come and destroy them. Mm. They would just talk about the big one, and it's like, I mean, it's, it's, it'll happen sooner or later. And I think LA has a similar thing. They're waiting for the and big, the big one, which is going to basically fracture the San Andreas fault, which is what kills his wife in the in the mm. story as well. Which, which, by the way, the wife and the daughter. Can we just quickly get into it? Because there's a big, there's two moments of of what we would say is heart in the film, where Stallone gets to instead of just being a prototypical man of action actually has like some sadness, some some emotion. He talks about his daughter and he's I think it's when he's with Lenina Huxley and he's like, Oh, um, you know, I imagine my daughter growing up in a world like this and and I would have no connection to her. Were you like me thinking there must have been a script where Huxley was his daughter? Obviously it doesn't happen yeah. because we have a it's scene like, that yeah. means that it can't happen, but it would make sense. I mean, right? math- mathematically, it wouldn't make, mathematically, it wouldn't make sense. Back to the sense. future, did it? But you, but that's why. You would... That's why we don't have his daughter in the film, Gullies, mm. because uh, she would have been too close to Huxley's age, and it would make the audience feel uncomfortable that he's getting with Huxley, who's the same age as his daughter. And that that they they shot scenes with the door. It, it, there's a yeah. deleted scene. Uh, I don't know if we can actually see the deleted scenes, but the the deleted storyline where Spartan's daughter is actually the the young woman that you see uh, with Edgar Friendly in the subterranean kind of part. Um, oh, she's okay. uh, serving him rat burger. They, uh, <laughs> not the lady that sells the rat burger, but there is uh, during their escape. Yeah, during their escape, there is a young woman that's kind of with them and she's kind of uh, never really introduced and she's just part of the shot. So they they obviously couldn't cut her out completely, but she was part of another storyline where 
uh, it was revealed that she was Spartan's daughter. There was another one with Zachary Lamb where he was killed by Phoenix as well. And he has a good oh, uh, yeah. death moment where they kind of, you know, that you see in movies all, all yeah, the time. Okay. Um, yeah, but that one of them was Spartan's daughter. But uh, I thought maybe she reappeared at the end. I think she does appear at the end. She stood next to Edgar Friendly, but she doesn't have a line. So uh, right. apparently she she was intended to be Spartan's daughter. Yeah, but again, that would have been two and a half hours, which this film yeah. does not need to be two and a half hours. From, from what I heard, that uh, yeah, Joel Joel Silver or Daniel Waters or whoever also said that um, it just killed the momentum. Stone right. Dead, a film which has been riding a, a pretty light tone after a certain point. You know, they're, they're not really going too deep into a lot of this stuff. So, uh, yeah, I think it would really, you know, to have a, a, a heartbreaking father-daughter moment. Also, wouldn't she mm. be like 40? I think they just yeah. didn't work it out. No, I don't she, think, I don't she think looks maybe maths. 30s, but okay. uh, she's hardly, you can hardly glimpse her. You know, you can maybe yeah. freeze it and have a look, but yeah. She's barely in it. Can we talk about the, the three seashells and how we get to it? Because I don't know about you, but when Stallone has been thawed out and there is an attractive lady who clearly admires me, the one thing I wouldn't do is go up to him and say, you're out of touch. I just want you specifically about in this room to know that I just did it for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've got an absolute monster. Like, I've got Donkey, literally King Kong finger in the toilet and I can't wipe my arse. Like, why would you say that to such a <laughs> But he does come out dressed, which means that he did wipe his arse somehow. So... <laughs> Did he just do it with his bare hands and wash them? I think the point is that he saw before he did it, because then, then he then swears to he get still needs the some tickets. At some point, no, right? he does. He gets the tickets and he but, goes back uh, in. But Benjamin Bratt says, uh, "Oh, he's been in there a long time." Oh. They, say, they point out he's been in there a long time. So maybe he's, <laughs> he's been figuring it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's two sco- schools of thought on this. Like, uh, I went on Reddit, which is always a, a worrying thing. Um, that somebody on Reddit thought that it was like an energy transfer. You use them in a, a kind of a futuristic way, and they're not actually seashells at all. It's just purely decorative. Because I heard another story that the the writer phoned one of his writer friends and said, "Look, I need a futuristic toilet scene. I don't really know what to do." And he goes, "What do you think?" And he went in his bathroom, and his wife had a like little bag of seashells that you sometimes see in a bathroom. Like they're completely non-functional, but he yeah. says, "Oh, I'll I'll work something out of that." So somebody on on Reddit says that it could be focused beams of energy and sound waves, um, and you kind of hover over the toilet, and it just kind of happens. They they draw (laughs) it it draws the you know draws it out of you. But then Schneider says he hasn't figured that out. And sorry, and there's no reason to to wash hands or anything like that, and there's no reason for paper or anything. But the, the 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 reason that Stallone said that the the writer told him. Was that it, it's used as a, a kind of a pincer? The t- oh, two of them are used as like so a, a pincer, and then the, the, the third is used for for scraping. And uh, so, who designed this? Like, did Cocteau design this thing too? Oh yeah, he's 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 responsible for their entire way of life. I mean, what makes me laugh though is if Stallone's theory is true, and they're eating at Taco Bell every night, it won't be it won't be like solid. It'll be horrible liquid the shells will just be filled with horrible fecal liquid um, do they throw <laughs> the seashells down the toilet you, got, you can't clean them so yeah do, do the seashells go down 
I I had it in my mind as a kid that it was like uh, sort of futuristic toilets that we see now in in Asia, Matt. That you know the ones that just sort of self clean. You just sort of right. hover with and the, it just with the various various jets. Yeah, and I think the Simpsons did a joke with it as well. I yeah. just thought that it was like that. But the idea that these seashells are actually like clamps for your poo is horrendous. Yeah. It, so, is, it is clearly madness. I think maybe that, the, uh, the banning of meat has influenced our diets to like such a degree that every just comes stool out is like kind a of perfect. Like, yeah, like a clean a clean drop, you know. So, you know, perhaps you, you don't need them anymore. A perfectly spherical pellet. <laughs> Yes. Mm. We have our big museum-based shoot up when they drop down into the glass floor and all that. Um, I think you're right, gals, when you mentioned that it's quite long. But it's because we haven't, it's because we haven't really had much up until this point. So I guess we need like fill the screen with some mayhem, and then he escapes, and that's when we we get the uh, you know the, the reveal of the Phoenix Cocteau connection. Have we had? Like clues to the underground at this point. We have had. Uh, yeah, they pop up with the graffiti. Yeah, Spartan spot the telescope type thing that comes out, which is mm. Leary yes. spying on the on Taco Bell and planning their um, right. well, planning getting food from a heist. Yeah, yeah, and it all kind of comes together in the uh, in the in the the infamous Taco Bell scene. But this is where the film gets a bit weird for me because it it kind of gets lost in its plotting, doesn't yes. it? Because uh, after this museum bit, and he's uh, um, Phoenix is running to Cocteau. Have I said that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, he's completely forgotten about, and Spartan doesn't go chasing him. It's, and it's true. Just yeah. Down. There's it's very weird. Well, there's like, a, a strange completely yeah, off. Yeah. The Phoenix uh, escapes, and then uh, the chief turns up, and that's when the Cocteau invites him to the Taco Bell, and that's when they have the yeah. whole conversation about how everything's Taco Bell. Mm. Uh, Phoenix yeah. goes down and, uh, at some point into a sewer cover and then just disappears from the film and reappears yeah. after the Taco Bell sequence to have another expository chat with Cocteau and then disappears again until he's got his bad gang of uh, Jesse Ventura, etc. Yeah. But also, like, Spartan and Huxley have no urgency yes. about them or any drugs. They go and have sex or virtual <laughs> sex. Yeah. We, we want to talk about that. And it that that just seems weird to me. Yeah, it just kind of bogs down in a sort of middle middle section of. I guess at, at this point we're into the fish out of water comedy stuff. Yeah. So then, Gally, if we spoke about the three seashells, do you want to talk about having sex in 2032? Oh, finally, I've been I've been activated. Yes, we have a sex scene, although weirdly kind of VRE and not really a sex scene, but. I think it's it's probably my favourite scene in the entire film. I think it's the bit where Stallone is at his best at being kind of hilarious. There's a there's a moment when you know, Lenina Huxley has seen him do his brutish, manly, macho action stuff, uh, which wasn't that impressive. He just put a tent on a bunch of people. It wasn't, it wasn't exactly <laughs> great. But the um, she's like, oh, and she's talking very uh, sort of eloquently and directly about, you know, would you like to have sex? And to be fair to Stallone, his reaction was like, what, with you? <laughs> he's like, yeah, like, and he checks right his now. breath. Yeah, you're right, you're right. right. He's like, right, right now. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. and it, it, I do like the fact he's like, oh yeah, and uh, yeah, everyone's thinking, <laughs> you know, of what course, life? of course, we want to, yeah, exactly. What daughter? Uh, and then, yeah, like you say, he checks his breath. He does yeah, all that kind of funny, goofy stuff. He puts the head stuff on, and he's like, uh, "What are we doing?" He's like, 
<laughs> we're having, we're about to have sex. Is that, doesn't, doesn't she leave a towel as well? Which I'm always wondering, <laughs> yeah, like, what's the towel in. for? Yeah. Well, it's to, it's to clean up his mess. Why wouldn't she explain it to him, though? Why is she, yeah, that's a good point. But I guess, it's you know, for, it's for, for us. For them, it's just how, how sex works. So I guess, you know, she sort of maybe would have, wouldn't have even thought about, you know, that it wasn't always like this. Um, but any any titillation that you might have of Sandra Bullock in weird multicolored lights and making O noises is is done in by Stallone's O face. Oh god, like, the costumes! <laughs> it's <revealed laughs> into his face. And I was laughing. I was laughing my head off when I was when I was thinking the film was trying to be like, yeah, let's get your juices going, which is why I think we get boobs in the next shot. But like, yeah, it's it, him just going. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? The uh, way it's the way it's framed as well just reminds me of uh, the the partner from Samurai Cop reacting to things because <laughs> <laughs> they're all just these individual shots, and it starts from there and snap zooms in on him over and over and over again. And then we get the best line of the film. Really. Oh God! When he's like, "What was that?" It's like, "Sex is outlawed," and she's saying, "This is how you do it." And it's like, "Oh, I just thought we were going to do it the old-fashioned way, you know, boning." What's it? What's the second thing the you said? The wild mamba, the hunker chunker. What's wrong? He broke contact. Cut contact. I didn't touch you yet. But I, I thought you wanted to make love. Is that what you call this? First sex has been proven to produce higher orders of alpha waves during digitized transference of sexual energies. All right, obviously, what do you say we just do it the old-fashioned way? Oh, disgusting. You mean fluid transfer? I mean bony, the, the wild mambo, the, the hunk of chunk. That is no longer done. Has anyone ever described making <laughs> love to your partner as the hunk of chunk? Hey, uh, hey, wife. Wife of wife of sixteen years, you want to go into the into the bedroom, maybe, and we could engage in the honka chonka. <laughs> yeah, my wife used the world number all the time. <laughs> Boning as well, like I can't invite it. Yeah, obviously, this is always trying to make him seem like he's got a complete Neanderthal, but just the, just the way he like does the whole Rocky. I'm gonna sort of stop you from going there and she sort of says to him you know aids makes up a couple of other diseases that are not yeah. real but you know the whole idea that sex has has, has created uh you know is, is dangerous and risky and obviously later on the film then says actually sex is a great way of uh of releasing tension but uh it's it's a really good scene and, and this is the stuff that they're more interested in Right, they're not interested in the action film at this point. For a good thirty minutes, we get all of this. This is this is some this is Austin Powers stuff. Where you know, uh, this is Liz Hurley explaining to Austin Powers that you know you can't treat people the way you used to treat people because the scene is actually, when you think about it, kind of a, a, an impressive depiction of a consensual relationship where she verbally confirms that they are going to have sex, and make sure everyone's okay with it, and then at the end of it, when she's when she's not into what he's saying. She says, get the fuck out, and he does. Which is, you know, refreshingly um, non-creepy for the sorts of films we usually end up watching. I don't know if any of you have seen the YouTube videos of Dennis Leary, uh, colon joke thief, but it's quite <laughs> indefensible as far as what he did to poor Bill Hicks. Has anyone uh, what? No, you're seen any of this No, you're going to educate me here, mate. I've no idea. It's basically he's copying uh, one particular joke that I remember from the video about um, how much he smokes. It's almost word for word. But instead of saying, 
Uh, I use two light. I go through two lighters a day, like Bill Hicks said. He he makes up some ridiculous number, like a thousand or four thousand. He just, it's like he he's capable of counting to a high number, so he thinks that's equating to, to <laughs> the genius of Bill Hicks. But Actually, um, like it completely undercuts the whole point of the Bill Hicks bit, isn't it? Where he like he, he picks someone out of the, the audience and just says, like, yeah. how much you smoke a day?" And he goes like, "A pack." It's like a pack. <laughs> I go through two lighters a day, dude. <laughs> Which like, uh, pres- it works. Presumably, when they said that Leary improved or wrote his own lines for Demolition Man, like presumably he got Bill Hicks to do it for him. It's <laughs> uh, maybe a, a year before Bill Hicks died, so I'm not sure what kind of state he was in but um and i don't think they were friends at the time either so yeah i, I think he burnt a bridge with uh with old bill so was well the, it's a bit of a funny character in this film <laughs> yeah I, it's well it's a, it's a strange one isn't it patrick because i think you know and we we see this to this day you know certainly in modern uh sort of modern comedies you get these you get uh, a comic uh, or somebody who's doing really well on SNL or stand-up, and you basically get them to transpose their stand-up show and just interject it into the film. And I think that's the Edgar Friendly of it all. I think he's supposed to be funny. I'll I'll just second what you're saying, Matt, about the 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 joke thievery of, of Dennis Leary. I also just think it's the whole act that he kind of stole. It's not just the individual jokes. It's the it's the kind of I don't give a shit. Yeah, it's the attitude. It's the anti-authoritarian kind of the, the the demeanor that Bill Hicks had. I guess the only thing that Leary did was just dial it up to eleven. Hence, why in Demolition Man we get the you know I want to eat this, I want to do that. So I get Wait, it. It's, from like it's, um, yeah. it's devoid of like the point though, because like I mean, I was a, a big Bill Hicks fan when I was younger. I think a lot of like teenage boys go through a big Bill Hicks phase. Mm. Um, probably because he kind of suits the the outlook, which is that, you know, you're just kind of making your big strides out into the world and you want to stake out a claim for your place. And it's, you know, it's like, I'm not like all these other sheep. I'm an adult and I'm going to eat <laughs> steak and drink coffee because it's bad for me. And you know, it's like, it's kind of a bit, in retrospect, it's, a, it's, it's you know, it is pretty kind of, in places, juvenile. But then Bill Hicks had more stuff going on around it, which kind of mm-hmm. contextualized it. He had kind yeah, of... propped it up. Yeah, he had broader points to make and they, they didn't always land and they don't, you know, a lot of the stuff that, that he's done now maybe hasn't aged especially well, but uh, at least for the time you could tell that there was a, a conviction behind it. I think and Leary's, even, uh, Leary's ranting comes from yeah. Bill and he's been yeah. cast in this purely for the ability to, his ability to rant. Yeah. And, and, and it just, yeah, it just comes off as kind of, I don't know whether the film is supposed to make us think that he's ridiculous or whether the film is supposed to make us think that this is, you know, there's, there's a little through line where I guess we talked before a little about the, the political viewpoint or otherwise of the film. And, um, you could read it as having like a bit of a libertarian bent to it. This Mm -hmm. idea of, you know, freedom above all else. And like, uh, even Simon Phoenix has a line where he says to Cocteau, like, you can't take away people's rights to be an arsehole, which, uh, I I don't think that. Yeah, I don't think I, I wouldn't say that I think the film has any kind of like a, a a staked out agenda or a kind of defined agenda. It's more just you know it's it's exploring some ideas and you you could I mean I know that uh, it is something that's sort of been held aloft as a bit of a kind of yeah you know freedom above all else type thing, which uh, again has become horribly prescient in recent times. But um, mm. uh, you know freedom to 
definitely do things which are which are you know objectively a bad idea. Yeah. Um, as as he functions in the film, though, um, Patrick, uh, you said you know are we supposed to take him seriously? I think he's just supposed to embody the other side, and that's it. Yeah. We don't really get any yeah. any other perspective of the subterranean group that's, apart yeah, from maybe. And again, I could be reaching here, but with the Ratburger, that 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 there's maybe a little bit more of a kind of minority populace underneath that don't want to follow Cocteau. But you can't even throw that at it because in in the film we see uh, policemen of different color or different creeds. It's not like it's it's not particularly overt, and I don't think mm. the film really wants to get into it. Hence, why at the end when it's like you speak to him and him speak to you, yeah. and that is it's, that it's is pretty. Fucking, that, it's like uh, <laughs> it's the Rocky Four conclusion as well. Sly just loves both sides in people. Like <laughs> well, maybe you become a little bit less communist, and you guys become a little bit more communist. <laughs> it, it, that is really <laughs> yeah. it. Like he doesn't uh, want to get into it. We made. I mean, I think I made the comparison of Equilibrium earlier. Mm. I think that's where that film does this all so much better. And I think that film understands where it's plotting uh, is, you know, with underground versus upstairs, downstairs, so so to speak. And yeah, I don't know. I, I it, Larry, I I had no idea he was a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't really, I'm, really, I'm very unfamiliar with his background, and um, I, I I wasn't a Bill Hicks fan actually, Chris. I, no, that wasn't oh, a fan. Okay. I, I'm really unfamiliar with his work completely. Yeah, when I was growing up, it just wasn't something I was. Uh, uh, subjected to whether it's my parents or I, I don't know, um, and yeah, the literary thing. I don't know. I, it's all that comes in the section of the film that I just think it loses its way, and I think we should be chasing Phoenix at this point, and mm. maybe that is, know, that is definitely too point. many in this film. He does like yeah. Phoenix does disappear. He goes down a hole, and then he turns up in another scene, and then he disappears from the end of that scene, and he's done. He goes down where Leary is, and the rat beggars mm. are, and. There's no real connection there, which... I think something was maybe cut out. Uh, I, I don't yeah. know where Zachary Lamb is supposed to have died, but it could be there. And there's also mm, some stuff okay. with uh, Stallone's daughter, which is chopped out there. So I think that's just truncated. Uh, one other mm. thing about Dennis Leary is I think that good comedians aren't cool. Like he's trying to be cool and funny, and mm. you can't have it both ways. As a comedian, you need like vulnerability and a certain amount of humility, and he's got neither. You know, he's just yeah. an obnoxious kind of voice. I think that comes across at the end um, when he, uh, he he says to um, Associate Bob, you know, he, he just takes the piss out of him, and it's just it's mm. a bit cruel and mean spirited. From Leary, yeah. who's dressed in shit, to, to, yeah. to question him and his hair and stuff, it's, it's not yeah slow hanging fruit, isn't it? At that point, I will um, yeah. I will say this though: if you are a little bit bored, um, as it sounds like all three of us were during this particular section then it's always good fun to have a bit of extra spotting. And um, we did it with Waterworld, where he actually had a line. But just just recognising that Jack Black is desperately trying to get in frame is quite hysterical in the background. It's Andy love... Milman. It is Andy Milman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andy just cut there. We'll... Exactly. we'll just edit out the, uh, the fat extra trying to get his face in there. I mean, it literally was that as well. It's so funny because he's got the makeup on and it's so obviously Jack Black. And he... You know, he, I, I've never read any of his, uh, I don't know if he's even published a book, but I'd love to hear his, like, Hollywood stories before he became 
Jack yeah. Black, just just him on set trying to you know trying to get in into the system. Well, he was uh, he always seems like quite a good sport about these things. I remember back when we did our Waterworld episode that we looked up the like the oral history of Waterworld. That I think it must have been the Hollywood Reporter or someone did, and you know Costner declined to be interviewed, and a bunch of other people couldn't be bothered. And there's Jack Black just you know <laughs> happy to participate, saying, yeah. "Yeah, I remember the time I flew a plane." Wait a minute, <laughs> Jack Black's in Waterworld. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he flies oh, wow. in the, he flies he's in the plane. biplane. Yes, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be watching that tonight. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Get get yourself on it, and so do you, listeners, and listen back to that episode, please. Oh, <laughs> oh no! Oh, the desperation. I'm like Jack myself, trying to get it in in shot. So, um, it's it's quite fun. But you're right. I think we've talked about it. But you know, Phoenix, for all of this uh, upskilling by uh, by the be- benevolent Cocteau, uh, shooting wasn't one of the skills because he's got the he's got the drop on him from above got the high ground and still misses with an automatic weapon and all four of them firing. It's And that's me, again, speaking to Brambeer, not coming up with a creative way of having Stallone and everyone not be, you know, not be affected, but still have the action sequence begin. It's It just, it felt pretty so, Saturday cartoon. So why isn't Joel Silver, the great producer, solving this as well, then? We've spoken about him kind of taking reins and part directing this. Why, why isn't he, you know, you can't brain... I don't think this film you can just blame the director. No, yeah, you're probably right, Patrick. I'm probably being a bit harsh, um, but I still think that Joel Silver jumps in at the end. Uh, I think he's he's not the guy who gets his hands dirty. He sits yeah. in his office and he looks at what's happened and he goes, "Well, I don't like that," or "I do like that." <laughs> I, I don't think he actually has any creativity himself. Um, he, he's just a someone who budges things around in the edit. Maybe I'm not too sure. Well, I tell you what, he did do though, Matt. He he. And, and this is something that, that kind of continues again till to, to today is always finding a sniveling Brit to be uh, <laughs> the sort of the, the enemy. And Nigel Hawthorne, for those that don't know, uh, an, a serious thespian, uh, a man of theatre. And I think you could probably say that it started with Alan Rickman with Die Hard, which obviously Joel Silver connection. You know, you bring in this actor who has not, not done a film before, but you know, you damn right has treaded the boards, uh, yeah. and I I did a bit of research because it was one of those ones where I was like, "Is that the madness of King George?" And I was like, "It really is him," <laughs> or as I like to call it, and this is the brass eye in me, uh, the crazy life of Arthur Brown, which is what I thought <laughs> the title was. Is what yeah. I thought the title of that film was for the longest time, but it, it really isn't. Um, but yeah, Nigel Hawthorne, I, I did a, some research on him, and he basically did this film because he just wanted to demonstrate to Hollywood and to the financiers of uh, The Madness of King George that he could act on film. And he just so happens right. that he does Demolition Man. Mm-hmm. And he, he's really quite scathed about the film. He hated <laughs> Wesley Snipes. He hated Sly Stallone. Jesus Christ. I mean, Wesley Snipes will uh, will rub <laughs> even just, you know, even your run-of-the-mill Hollywood actor up the wrong way. So can you imagine fucking <laughs> Yes Minister uh, walking there having to put up this bullshit? <laughs> You can literally imagine him in his trailer, like with his glasses, reading the script, going, "Why is this Cocteau, <laughs> who is so smart, just says to Simon Phoenix, yeah, you can have more goons to kill this one guy?' Like he's so, yet so smart, yet so stupid. Um, yeah, but... you can have a bunch of goons that I have not programmed to not murder. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a shame, but I, I think he's great in this because you can actually feel his contempt for everyone on set. 
uh, which, which feeds <laughs> into the character. We didn't mention Jesse Ventura um, earlier either. Um, there, there's another sequence where um, John Spartan fights him. Uh, I've never seen it. I don't know whether it's been whether it exists anywhere. I'm dying for a Blu-ray extended edition of this. So I'd just love to see it. But uh, he's as he exists in the theatrical cut, he just sits there looking like Jesse Ventura and. It uh, doesn't really say anything, but there was another plot line that was completely cut, I think, with, with a battle between the two of them. Oh, poor Jesse. I mean, Captain Freedom himself, he's fought Arnie. What it would have been to see Arnie, uh, Jesse Ventura fight Stallone. And he would win. I would Did they ever work together in anything else? I don't think so, right? Hmm. Venture, you would think that Venture and Sylvester Stallone would have crossed paths at some point, but I can't think of anything other than nah, it. I can't think no, of anything. Because he, ju- he just cackles in this. He doesn't have a line, does he? He literally just laughs. <laughs> uh, the Expendables didn't rope him in, did they? No. Well, I think at that uh, point, I think he's he was full too... mental. He's yeah, off the well... grid. He's living in Mexico. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever hear um, uh, uh, on like Comedy Bang Bang, there's a comedian called James Adomian who does the fucking best impression of Jesse the Mind Venture. <laughs> no. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> I would recommend listening to any of those uh, podcasts. They're great. Oh, God. Well, he's like he's like a Poundland Hogan, isn't he? Like, he looks like <laughs> him. He's the same size, roughly. He's got the same kind of uh, cadence, but for some reason, Hogan... Was was Hollywood Hogan and, and Ventura just yeah, yeah. forcibly relegated? It's a shame because Ventura was always better in the wrestling as well. Well, he was more of an Arnie guy, wasn't he? He's in a couple of movies with Arnie, and it, I think that's maybe the connection. Maybe he's trying to steal a bit of Arnie's thunder, Stallone, by pinching yeah. Jesse. He's made yeah. Jess. Or, yeah, and probably in the edit room just said, "This is what I think of your Arnie uh, sort of substance." Oh, you reckon it was a power play? Oh, maybe. I don't know. Bring maybe him in, then cut fun. him. The problem is, if we ask Ventura, we'll, we'll basically he'll blame it on aliens or something. <laughs> it was all just a part of the deep state. <laughs> no, there's one thing I really want to ask you guys: is uh, do, do we really believe that Sly the, <laughs> would um, have knitted a top in less than twelve hours? It's a big fucking jumper, right? <laughs> It looks so warm. So warm for San Andreas. She never yeah, wears it. it. <laughs> it really cracked me up. I'm like, he did fucking knit that in 12 hours, for God's sake. But I, I do quite like the touch because he, he obviously did encroach. Um, and I, I, I like the, again, Sandra yeah. Bullock sells it. I know, get the sentiment. It. I get that. It's yeah. just, you do, oh, you're on about the practicalities as yeah. well. Like, I mean, I think that kind of works yeah. because it is funny, but if you, you're playing that off against what Simon Phoenix has got in his cryo sludge and he's got all that cool stuff and uh, Stallone can knit a jumper. So that, that ups the stakes a bit. But again, that, that feeds into undercutting the Simon Phoenix character because by the end, you know, he catches him a li- in one of those little teddy, uh, teddy sort of claw things. Ah, the claw. <laughs> yeah. ca- catches him and then still firing and missing. And it's ridiculous. It's just like, well, if he's got all these powers... Get them doing fisty cuts. They do have a bit he of a He does bite. like to laugh to himself. He spends a lot of time just laughing. And when mm-hmm. he's sat in a chair, it feels really weird, like, staging. And why would he be sat in the chair? They... Yeah, he sat odd. in a chair to give, like, the monologue and the 
the bad speech before you take down someone, but when you're in an action scene to be sat down, <laughs> like <laughs> it's, it's all very weird that that bit. Yeah, it, it, it just it feels to me like again it's the the cobbling together of 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 what they had either you know when they were shooting it or uh, probably in the editing room, but it just it was such a shame because we've talked how uh, we talked about how we felt like the Simon Phoenix character was really well established. Um, and we, we think that Wesley Snipes is doing a really good job, but I think one of the reasons why he, him, he doesn't endure and maybe the film doesn't endure is those action bits that you want to be like, you know, popping. They just, uh, yeah, they just feel a bit lackluster and, um, hmm. it's a shame. And the only other thing I wanted to make mention of is, and it's mainly because it's, he was so prominent in the nineties. The music, did you guys, recognize the stings of Elliot Goldenthal? Oh, I thought you were talking uh, about the, the, I thought you were talking about the stings of Sting. Oh God, I just realized, <laughs> I just walked, <laughs> Devlin, thank you, I just walked right into that. No, the song Demolition Man will not be playing on the outro of this year episode. <laughs> what a dreadful, dreadful song. Yeah. No, I, I just meant the score music because it's, uh, the man who brought us, uh, the sort of Batman, the, the changing of the guards for the Batman theme music so he did batman forever and i don't know if he did batman ah. Robin, but definitely batman forever and, yeah. the, and a score and a piece of score that i absolutely adore, uh, adore which is alien 3 which is very similar kind of uh themes and melodies from alien 3 to weird one of the best things about that film i think the score but well, um... i i also just just to tie in the ending galley uh because obviously this isn't long after Terminator 2 when we get the liquid nitrogen kind of mm. cool death for for um, Phoenix and I, I got a lot of Anvil type notes in the score as well that I think harks back to Terminator I think um, yeah well uh, the, the, the uh, font they use for the credits is is a straight rip off from Terminator yeah, as well yeah I, th- I, mm-hmm. I got that um, but yeah so, so, the score's fine I got a Batman yeah, it, vibe, the Batman 90, that Elfman kind of thing, uh, kind of early on in the film. I thought he was maybe pinching some stuff from there. But yeah, I liked it. I enjoyed the music. Were you talking about the little hip hop blasts when, uh, oh, when well, you know, we met, we, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I do have to address that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how we've managed to go so long without, uh, mentioning it. I, I, I think I said to you, Devlin, offline though, I don't think there's anything malicious in it. You know, I don't feel like it's a, oh, that feels a bit like out of place and a bit maybe misguided. I think mm-hmm. it's more just, there's your pop culture again from Joel Silver. Like, what are, what are people listening to at the minute? And, and obviously Wesley Snipes, <laughs> the way he's dressed and the way mm-hmm. that he's performing. Cause there's a bit I where. I don't recall you know, the he... score for White Men Car. Oh, no, no, it's not a score. It's not a piece of score. Time, it's just a piece of. It? <laughs> It's just a piece of scratching. Every time, every time Wesley right, Snipes right, uh, right. issues a punch or a kick, mm, you yeah. get the <laughs> and it's uh, it's quite odd. And there's a bit where there's a bit of hip hop music playing, um, which wouldn't be when he grabs the camera uh, and he starts singing the baseball. Oh yeah, uh, oh yeah, yeah. But oh, yeah. I, I don't know what you guys thought. I didn't. I didn't take it as like, oh, that feels a bit egregious. I think it, I think it can be both things. I doubt that they weren't aware of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, th- I think he's just trying to keep it to a young audience. The music. Yeah, yeah it, it didn't dawn on me actually. I I just accepted it. I, it was probably just that kind of you know casual, just you know the, the sort of the it's casual. The Dennis Rodman era, as we spoke yeah. about, isn't it? And that mm. music and that life. It's, 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 it's all it's that the... cool. 
uh, Chicago Bulls like hip hop culture. I think it's of, of time and the place, and that's mm. why we got those beats of music. I don't think we would have it if it was Seagal. But that's, no, exactly. No, that's, that's what I mean. I think it was just a. <laughs> I, I think it. I don't think it was like actively like let's try and you know let let's try and make uh, uh, our character look worse because he is African American. I think it's just a case of like oh, we have an African American on screen. Mm. Just line up those weird record scratches you got in the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the exactly. library. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I'll uh, I'll go around okay. the room. I'll ask the I'll ask the, the questions that I always ask, which is you know. Any final thoughts? And would you recommend uh, our listeners going back and seeking some demolition, man? Well, I'll highly recommend this one, um, preferably on a Friday night with some drinks and friends. Uh, my girlfriend Shin called me an action movie snob recently because I <laughs> slagged off uh, Taken so badly. And <laughs> as a Roger Moore fan, uh, to have a go at Liam Neeson, I've realized I'm a little bit hypocritical. So um, I'm going to drop that angle and confess to loving this one like for me it really holds up it delivers on all the brutal action blows uh, it still looks pricey and a, a bit glossy uh the cg hasn't got its dirty paws on it really i think it's kind of just a little bit before all that came in so uh and any cg that it has doesn't bother me it feels kind of of the time and didn't take me out of the action at all i think it's got scope and scale and there's a great visualist in, in Brambia and the DOP that he works with. Uh, there's satirical humor. So anyone who's a fan of Paul Verhoeven, they should get on this. Uh, you could pair it with a Judge Dredd or um, maybe Last Action Hero we talked about. That's kind of a cool coupling that you could do as a double bill. Uh, I think it successfully comments on the 90s and the excess of it and represents those big action blockbusters very accurately. And flies the flag for the kind of films that I loved as an early teenager. I think you're going to lose a few brain cells, but it's a fun, relatively healthy way to rid yourself of them. And uh, what else can I say? It, it inspired joy, joy feelings in me. <laughs> um, Devlin, what did you think? Uh, I actually, I really liked going back to watch it. Which, what was uh, unusual was that um, I, so I tried watching it uh, just on my own. Uh, at home and i really uh struggled like i couldn't i couldn't uh focus on it i was restless shuffling around i was looking at things i was sort of pausing it it took me about an hour just to get through the first half hour um which was uh which was a bit weird and i i told my uh my partner that this is what i was watching and she'd never seen it um so i ended up just kind of uh, uh i put a stop to it and i said we'll watch it after work and watching it with someone else makes all the difference in the world i think hmm. uh i don't know whether that was just me or my where i was at at the time but watching it with somebody suddenly it was uh it was like super fun just like a total breeze to go through i mean we've said there's there's some weird structural problems with it there's uh uh the the idea of it being some kind of insightful under uh, under the radar satirical masterpiece which is a sort of reputation that it's gained over a few years of like i think people like to you know kind of revise it as uh, i don't think it has you know has much to to say that's particularly deep but i do appreciate that they've put that in there that it's it's got more to say than than your average kind of uh 80s 90s action flick and like you say matt it's a it's a nice kind of um it's a nice kind of celebration of that sort of 
strange bloated excess kind of fun for fun's sake sort of thing um as far as like stallone's kind of uh uh irony and self-awareness um I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but I would recommend you looking it up immediately after we finish. Uh, Sylvester Stallone has designed, of all things, a fountain pen <laughs> for uh, an Italian <laughs> company called Montegrappa. And you can see a trailer for it on YouTube. A trailer you can for also, a, They for made a, a trailer for a fountain pen, and it's called Chaos. It costs $5,000, <laughs> and it looks like it was designed by, like, the the third dumbest member of the dumbest metal band in Florida in the 1990s. It is fucking atrocious. It's skulls with snakes crawling out of the eyes and then other skulls crawling out of the snakes. And it's also on fire and it's also got swords on it. <laughs> what is going on? And can, it's it, made can, it, it, can you write on paper with it? I mean, uh, I, it did the, at no point during the two and a half minute trailer does it show that oh it writes. Oh my god, one of them is going for forty and a half thousand pounds. Well, wow. there we go. So, the, in terms of like Sylvester Stallone's level of self awareness, whenever I feel like I want to know, like, is Sylvester Stallone in on this? I like to just go back and revisit the trailer for <laughs> the Montegrappa Chaos Pen and think, I don't think Sylvester Stallone oh, is in on a lot of things. <laughs> so. But but that's what that's what you gotta love about this kind of action film, and that's why this stands out more than than something like um. Oh my god! The late oh, than the... an image I need to send you. <laughs> <laughs> so this is why, like, uh, uh, when I think this stands out over later stuff, like the uh, like the Expendables things, because I don't think he has the the, the right sort of self awareness, and we're out of that era now, and and you can't really you can never really successfully reclaim the past. So I think this is like a big last hurrah for you know. <laughs> Big stupid Joel Silver bullshit, and uh, and it is a good laugh, and I would recommend watching it again. Um, Patrick, if you've recovered from the monographic chaos, <laughs> I don't think I ever will. <laughs> There's a watch as well, you know. Have you seen the watch? I'm about to. <laughs> I mean, this doesn't what make for great uh, great audio podcasting, <laughs> but we will we will definitely uh, put a link uh, on the show notes. I'm looking at it now. That oh is God, that love honestly it so looks much. like. That looks like a Ron Burgundy spoof kind of ad. I cannot yep. believe what I'm looking at. This <laughs> reminds incredible. me of what I'm imagining is like in Lost in Translation when Bill Murray goes to Japan and advertises Suntory Times. And this looks like Sylvester Stallone's been put in an advertising booth like, for relaxing writing. Choose chaos pens. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is mad. Okay. Wow. Oh, yeah. And sorry. I recommend this film. I, I had a blast watching it again. Um, it's funny what you're saying, Dav, about watching it with people because I kind of preferred watching it with somebody. But I, I even it, it it served me well. Um, I, I've been doing these pub quizzes and I had the film on in the background, and I kept dipping in and out of it and for the bits that I enjoy the most and really enjoying the film that way because I do I do think it's quite um, an entertaining film. It's really fun. Uh, I, I I love Sandra Bullock in the film, and I, I she was kind of one of my main things um to, to reprise and be really impressed with while watching it uh we there was a line that i really liked that she that the way she delivers it because i think her character has a really good arc um it's just a shame she was let down at the end but when she kills that that bad guy and she says man has died by my hands i think she does a really good job of that uh and i really like her character in the film sly is sly and um 
oh, just to, just to re-mention as well, I was blown away kind of by the beginning with the helicopter and the explosion shot and the action sequence there, which I think is a really good opening. And I just, maybe I wish the action would be a bit more constant in, in the, and the film not put the brakes on, so to speak, in the, in the second act uh, in the middle there, because we, we've spoken about that. And I, I do think that kind of, uh, ruins the pace a bit of the film but um, I do think that this film is certainly uh, it, it kind of represents a time and a place for me and I do see it of um, early 90s kind of action film that is really good fun and does a good job of I actually think it kind of lasts as well I think it's um, stood the test of time quite well in how it looks and its ideas and the science fiction of it so to speak and um yeah what about you gally uh i I'm, I'm really surprised i'm probably the the most lukewarm out of all out of all of us um I, it might be uh down to the fact that i did watch it on my uh on my lonesome um but but what i will say is uh i'll, I'll disagree with matt on the action because i don't think it actually does deliver uh enough bang uh for your buck um but i think the satirical elements I agree with you, Debs. Like, I think this film sometimes is uh, is sort of propped up a little bit more than it probably should be. Um, but I, I do find that the comic stuff is really quite fun. I think Wesley Snipes is is great. He's a really good. You know that that could have been such a nothing villain role against a Stallone at the height of his power. And I think Snipes does a really good job of um, of actually matching his meat, so to speak, uh, and 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 and. And elevating it, and I think Sandra Bullock is the other, you know, you know, bright shining star in the film. Um, again, maybe I'm being a bit too harsh on Brambeer, but some of the stuff looks great, and other parts just feel a bit laboured and a bit lacking of any kind of imagination and creativity. But uh, overall, I think it's breezy, fun. Um, I think out of the two, I'm probably, despite it being bloated, a more of a last action hero. Uh, out of the two of them, but that's probably uh, my pension for a bit of Schwarzenegger. But I also think in that film, which was clearly cut out of Demolition Man, that one had a bit more heart. Uh, you know, I, there's a bit more emotional stakes being raised in Last Action Hero um, than maybe than maybe the, there is in Demolition Man. However, with all that said, um, for your two hours, it's good fun, isn't it? And I think a, a Friday night with with a pint. And with friends is uh, is exactly where this film should live. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to recommend it too. I just maybe not as uh, yeah, maybe not as uh, strongly as uh, as you three. But I totally respect what you're saying because uh, I think we're in agreement. We're just probably some, somewhere else on the dial. As far as uh, revisiting it for you, for you listeners, uh, it's currently streaming on Amazon Prime. So if you have that, um, then then you can watch it tonight. What are you doing? Get into it. Um, Netflix Korea has it too. Oh, fantastic. Well, there we go. For our um, Korean listeners. Course. Yeah, our <laughs> Korean listeners. Netflix career, like, <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. And, you know, it's readily available. Uh, I think you can get it on Google Play, YouTube, you know, if you want to uh, rent it and purchase. But uh, it's one of those that does, uh, I haven't seen it on TV for a while on UK television. I, I've got to admit, you know, I've not seen it on like ITV2 or, or anything like that. No, it's kind of dropped off, fun. isn't it? So we'll say our goodbyes. Um, I was trying to think of something really funny because there's loads of really funny lines in Demolition <laughs> Man. But I think all I'm going to say is, you're out of turn of paper. It's Gally <laughs> in Glasgow <laughs> uh, signing out. You guys stay safe out there. Mm.
so much for the seashells. It's Devlin in London. I could weave a throw rug right now with my eyes closed. It's Matt in South Korea. Don't need to cannoli. It's Patrick. <laughs> Patrick from London. Cheers, guys. Thanks very much, guys, and uh, we'll see you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Not the-